Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Week in IndyCar show presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and finally our awesome friends in the north, torontomotorsports.com for a great little message of a promo they are running this week. Hopefully that might interest you. First thing I want to get to though is just saying thank you <laughs> and some of you might be getting tired of me saying thank you but you know uh, I figure you're trying to bring positivity to the world, which so many of you have done for my wife and I, then the least I can do is keep trying to mirror that and send it back your way. My family at Racer Magazine surprised my wife, Shabrell, and I with a GoFundMe page, and this is not something I expected or just had any real thought might be happening, but... Paul Fanner, the founder of Racer Magazine, and Molly Banks, who is the special projects manager at Racer, put together a GoFundMe page knowing that my wife and I just got home after 21 days away, 18 of those in the hospital with my wife now fighting uh, three forms, uh, three locations of cancer, uh, knowing that there's going to be a number of medical bills piling up. All kinds of other things, too. Just honestly, uh, financial uncertainty. Um, this is something that, knowing this was ahead and having been through it many times himself with family members, Paul and then Molly were just instrumental in realizing that, hey, they are going to need some help. Don't know what that help is, but it's going to be significant. And not just coming out of the hospital, but in the weeks and definitely months ahead. And so through this, what I can only describe as totally insane reaction to the GoFundMe page they created as of tonight, this is Monday night at about 8.36, it's over $112,000. And I just, uh, I make a word, I make a living using words, me not know how to put words, say them good um i'm at a loss for words my friends my family my podcast family i just don't know what to say um this is truly making uh making folks cry my wife and i have just been we've just been staring at each other um wondering what it is we did hopefully we've done enough right in the world to deserve this so just want to say thank you to everyone uh, there have been more than 1,200 people who have donated, and all I can say is I don't know most of you, but most of you are amazing, and thank you so much. The other thing just to mention as well is looking at all the drivers and team owners and team managers and engineers and PR folk. I don't want to go through naming them name by name, but I can tell you that I wrote down a list of folks that I at least have their numbers so I can reach out to them and say thank you. And I am looking at that list, and it has to be 75 to 100 at least. And so, again, these are from folks you might have never heard of behind the scenes to Indy 500 winners to legends to you name it. And uh, anyways, just just wanted to say thank you so much. Um, to everybody and the selflessness heck I've even had or we've even had uh, rival media outlets 
make donations uh, or what you might think are rival outlets, but in reality are just really fine folks who have wanted to help. And so, yeah, this is just uh, it's an amazing time for us in receiving this love and support. And I don't want to make this a weekly topic, but anytime someone surprises you with the GoFundMe page and then friends like Stephen Wilson, James Hinchcliffe, Robert Wickens, Joseph Newgarden, Ryan Hunter Ray, Jordan Taylor, Lawson Oshenbach, I can go on and on, who've actually you know made a real effort just on their own. Graham Rahal, unsolicited, uh, decided to share this message on social media and ask for support. Um, it's that call to action by folks like that who, without being asked, without my knowing, have just done some really incredible things to help my wife and I. So thank you to everyone who has responded to that. And yeah, me not word good, assemble much now. Maybe I'm hoping, I'm hoping to be able to write something just to say thank you to everyone. Uh, but also hopefully this does not become a weekly thing where I uh, wear you guys out with updates and thanks. Uh, last quick mention on this topic. We will indeed, uh, we're home now. Finally, today is our first day home. Got home late morning. And we're going to be jumping right into a lot of the kind of follow-up things that happen when you have cancer. So none of those should be a surprise. Uh, But just going to jump into whatever the next couple of weeks and months have for us. And it is not going to be easy. There will be days where you don't hear a peep out of me whatsoever. And then there will probably be days where you see Jesus. Five stories, idiot, really? You think we have time to read all that? Uh, It's just kind of sort of the nature of dealing with something like this and since i am the number one and really only person here to look after things that just means that again my uh, my time is subject to our greatest priority which is my amazing wife so thank you again to everyone for just showering us with so much love and favor it's it's just it's beyond something we can verbalize at this point. Looking at what we have coming up today with Joseph Newgarden and James Hinchcliffe, I thought last week's episode with Takuma Sato and Marcus Erickson might have been my favorite of the year, and the two nut jobs we had today, I can just say absolutely topped it. Uh, Hinch was absolutely on fire, and then... Uh, recorded with him first and then joseph and joseph just (laughs) ah i'm telling you from the uh from the milk veins video discussion to dissing alexander rossi not on his own it was a request by one of our listeners um to just all manner of stuff oh my goodness um joseph is just a treat so You'll just hear me laughing throughout the episode, in particular with Joseph. And, yeah, these guys are just a joy. Then they also bring, you know, some inside stuff. We also crack open with both of them on the Formula One Canadian Grand Prix. And uh, whether it was the right call or wrong call between Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton, that uh, really kind of dominated the motor racing news last weekend. So that's what we have in store for you I'm going to close as is becoming the norm with your questions. Fortunately, you've sent in a lot, which is pretty amazing. But again, I want to put our guests up front here because 
that's why I show up every day to uh, listen to our guests, not so much me. Uh, a couple other quick things here coming back to torontomotorsports.com. They have received the final batch, yeah, meaning once they are gone, there will be no more. The final batch of 118th Robert Wickens scale models. And this is obviously from his number six Schmidt Peterson Motorsports Honda from the 2018 season. So our very good man, Derek Koska, tells me that, yes, indeed, the final batch of Wiki 118th IndyCar models have arrived at torontomotorsports.com. So if you want one, this would be the perfect time to visit torontomotorsports.com, which is celebrating their 25th anniversary, and get your hands on an awesome Wiki model. Throw another couple quick things here before we get into the show. Uh, speaking of just family and awesome and amazing things, um, I guess this is just to make sure that uh, my wife and I are feeling even more secure. But my long, long time family at Road and Track, uh, this is dating back to the aughts, to the uh, mid 2000s, uh, they sent over a new two year extension. And so, just saying. Um, I won't, won't claim that I'm going to be retiring anytime soon on uh, the income, but that's really not the point. It's the fact that knowing what's going on here, they wanted to make sure that uh, they have me feeling comfy and a part of their family at minimum through the end of 2020. And by that point, seriously, this is becoming a, I don't know how many year relationship, but uh, a really long relationship. But I just thought that was pretty amazing of them. Another thing to mention here, going back a month or two, three months, I'm not exactly sure. It might've even been longer than that. The conversation at Racer Magazine in terms of the digital content, uh, knowing that uh, myself and Robin Miller and many of the folks who you might read on a regular basis on racer.com, we actually work on both sides of the business, both the print with Racer Magazine, which was founded and launched in 1992. We contribute to that on the print side and the digital. Uh, conversation's been going around for a decent portion of the year that, hey, if you can think of anyone who, if we need them in a pinch, or who knows, possibly more on the digital side in terms of reporting and writing in general, let us know who you're thinking of. And that person that I have mentioned uh, actually last year when the topic came up and then again much earlier this year, I think it might have been, I don't know, uh, February possibly, was Joey Barnes, who is a freelancer who's contributed to a number of outlets, including IndyCar.com. And so knowing that Joey had some conversations with Racer back in February uh, when we were starting to look at the fact that my travel schedule is still, as I've mentioned a few times, not just up in the air, actually not in the air at all, on the ground. I'm grounded for a while. All good, though. Uh, but, hey, if you're not going to be able to get on the road and we do need someone to hit an event and cover that for us live, who might you suggest? Well, Joey is someone that I suggested uh, however many months ago. And when we uh, struck upon this latest uh, situation that will have me grounded, he was the first one that I suggested again. And really happy to see that last weekend at Texas, which happens to be Joey's home state and home race, he was able to uh, step in for me, cover session reports, race reports, etc., and I thought did a really awesome job. So love seeing a up-and-coming, developing journalist like Joey in a space in this kind of 
road racy, not NASCAR, not F1 space. There's not a lot. I mean, it's really, truly very few call them next generation uh, men or women um, looking to make this a career. So when you have someone like Joey who can come in and help in a pinch and hopefully be able to help some more in the future, really awesome to see, really happy for Joey. And uh, everything that I've heard says he really grabbed the opportunity and made the most of it. So all awesome stuff there. And all right, with all that said, let's get going with the mayor of Hinchtown, who's going to actually follow after Joseph Newgarden. I did ask Joseph first, so sorry, Hinch, he won the race, but asked Joseph uh, first. He said yes. So I'm going to run with our man, Mr. Newgarden, your 2017 IndyCar Series champion, your current points leader, and then follow with the mayor. And then I will round up with the questions you have for me. A couple in there that might be of interest. Uh, one on the Colton Herta Scott Dixon incident, and another one, which I know looking at the comments on racer.com, which is always, uh, yeah, there's always some self loathing involved. Uh, there's questions about accuracy in reporting or fake news or other stuff regarding something that I posted last week regarding the Harding Steinbrenner team being in a difficult financial situation. And then my colleague Robin Miller posting a story yesterday, I believe, about the team stating that they have a multi-year deal with their current sponsor, etc. And what's real, what's not. And I can't get into everything, but we'll try and break down as much of that as I can to fill in some of the things that really did not belong in print Uh, So, anyways, that's coming up after Joseph and after the mayor. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Jam Master Joseph Newgarden, always a treat when you join us here on the Weekend IndyCar. Even better when you head home smelling like champagne and gunpowder, too. You're firing guns in victory lane. (laughs) Ah, Life must be good for you, my man man it's it's been it's been crazy for sure um you know i mean you know the drill here with with this time of the year and i'm actually i'm quite excited for for all the all the boys and girls now that we've got this weekend off i think everyone's been looking forward to it and you know the good thing i guess about this year is that we're gonna have uh we're gonna have a nice way to go into a break you know you you never know what you're gonna get sometimes you have a couple bad races before this this uh this break that you've been looking forward to. And, and this time around, we've had a couple decent weekends. And I think as the, the team as a whole, they had, you know, three really great weekends with, with Indy included. So um, yeah, it's, it's nice. I mean, it's just nice for everyone to get a break first and foremost. So looking forward to that, but it's, it's, it's been a, a good lead up um, before it. Well, first question, not asked by any of our listeners, but the most important question, which I'm sure you're fully clued in on Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, the penalty that came down Sunday in Montreal, right call, wrong call. Well, that's, that is a hot debate. <laughs> um, I think the general consensus is, uh, is united. I think most people would agree that from a racing standpoint, it was not the right call. Um, it's it's so tricky you know i think you break it up into many parts was you know i think what sebastian did was was pretty normal uh he's you know he's a race car driver and he's competitive and when you 
make a mistake and go off course, uh, you do everything you can to gather it up and get going again as fastly as fast as possible. And, you know, that just happened to, to be in the way of, of Lewis. And I don't even know if that's as much strategic on his part. It's just kind of your instinctual nature is to, you know, to, to defend your position. Um, so the way that tied into the entry back on the track and was that correct or, or not for, as far as a safety point of view, it's, those are all too intricate of, of procedures, I think, to answer. I think as, as a whole and a, as a race car driver, you'd want everyone to just stand back, though, and not make decisions in, in, in that particular instance. So I don't think there should have been a penalty. I don't think race control should have been involved in that unless there was something flagrant, which I do not believe that was a flagrant issue that Sebastian had. Then I don't think race control should be involved as far as the, the reentry under the track. I think it was a racing deal. He made a mistake. He tried to recover. He recovered as best he could. He, had, you know, impeded Lewis, and then the race continued on, and that's what it was. And that's, you know, to me, that's just a racing deal. Um, so yeah, it's hard to it's hard to answer it perfectly, and you know, have a firm stance on it. I just, I, the one thing is I don't think race control should have been involved in that incident. I don't think it was flagrant enough to, to warrant it. Quick thought here. And at least in reading on the interwebs, great place for knowledge. Uh, so I can't claim whether this is accurate or not, but uh, I've read a few folks who've said, boy, it would have been wonderful if the F1 stewards had said, all right, Vettel, you made a mistake you went off track you blocked lewis a bit uh, intentional or not uh something that you caused created something that was a little questionable let him go let him have the position back and then however many laps were left in the race in theory i mean granted vettel did have a faster car uh but in theory you'll have enough laps to maybe chase him down and take the position back i'm i've in what i've read that's not an option the f1 stewards have given themselves at least knowing an Indy car, and I've seen this in sports cars a lot, there is often that kind of thing where, you know, I don't know, someone blows through a chicane and uh, picks up a position or two, and they're told, hey, hey, either fall back or you're coming to pit lane for a drive through. That seems to be, if we're talking a consensus, the if that could have been done, that might have left a lot of folks feeling much better about the outcome. Hey, you messed up. We're going to make you pay by giving the position you blocked them from getting, but at least then you'd have time to try and fight and get it back. So, again, I think that might be the middle ground if they'd been able to go that way or if they chose to go that way. Yeah, I would have settled on that compromise. You know, I think it's better than a five-second post-race penalty, um, you know, to the time. I think, yeah, if you if you would have made it cleaner and simpler that you have to give up the position because you ran wide and then you can fight to try and get it back, then – I like that better than the other outcome. Um, I still would vote for, you know, no involvement. I think that I didn't think the involvement was necessary or that there was a judgment necessary on it. Uh, at least that particular instance, it's just tough too when you look at the track configuration, you know, it's not one of these typical chicanes where you can blow the chicane and, you know, keep an advantage. I mean, this, this, this has grass in this section. It's not, it's not, a traditional pavement chicane that you're blowing through with, with curbings. Um, so it's, it's kind of hard with the layout. If you want to make that section penalizing where you can't, you know, you can't just blow through the center, then just make a wall there, you know, make it full street course and, and run a wall along the chicane. Then. And then if you mess up, you're going to hit the wall. Um, 
So it's just tough because it's circumstantial, I guess. If if this was, yeah, I mean, there's so many there's so many rabbit holes you can go down with that because then you can start looking at the final chicane too, and, and what would you do in that instance? Um, just because there's no pavement there and there's grass, you would think it's more self penalizing, but I don't know. I prefer the more standoff approach there, but I, I like your compromise that's been recommended better than better than the time penalty for sure. So you're a young man, you're only 28 years old. Just keep in mind, 20-ish years from now, 30-ish years from now, you might be getting that call, hey, old man, new garden, would you and your wife and your seven kids and all that, would you like to come be a steward for the weekend? Incidents like this leaving you in the hell no category, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm okay, actually. I, I, I understand and respect the difficult position that all race stewards have um it's always easier on the other side you know when you when you don't have to make the call and not only do you not have to make the call but you don't have to make it as quickly as they do you know they, they're making these decisions within a couple minutes uh you know on some in some cases so it's it's very very difficult in those moments when you when you have a 12 hours to think about it and you know 30 times to replay it then everyone could become an expert but yeah I, i'm going to probably stay away from the offers of of becoming a guest steward at any point in the future so in my transition from working in indycar into trying to figure out what i was going to do next i spent a year as a race steward chief steward for a local road racing series here in the bay area i was so good at it joseph I was soon trying to brush up on my English skills and whatnot so I could do me some word writing to do something different. So <laughs> I'm in full agreement on that. All right, before we get to the awesome questions that have been sent in for you, just wanted to say quickly, say thank you to you and so many of the other IndyCar drivers who have been very selfless in helping to raise awareness about uh, what my wife and I are going through right now. And as always, didn't have to do it, but you did. And I think that just speaks to your character. So thank you, my friend. Man, it's been it has been awesome. I, I you know we were chatting obviously before the show. And I don't know if I should bring it up or not, but it's uh, I think it's very cool. You you Marshall, you have you have done so much for so many others, and you know that's it's just coming from one person. I mean, I think everyone in the community would say this, but uh, you have been you know such a uh, such a bright light for so many people when they need it. So to see everyone return that light to you guys has been amazing. So I, I would echo the thanks to everyone. And I think it's so cool. And you guys are such lovely people and, and you know, we all are here for you and, and wish the best and can't want to help and, and will help in any way that we can. So uh, thanks to everyone else. Like you said, you're trying to make a fat guy cry. All right, let's get going with Ben Cohen. It says, Joseph, how many strategies do you and Tim Sidrick go over prior to a race? He says, while you've been driving your tail off, your team has followed suit in their strategy and calls. Best of luck the rest of the year. I think that's the most perfect analysis so far coming out of the first half of the season. You've been in an amazing place, but man, uh, that team of yours has been in lockstep with delivering from race to race. Dude, these guys are incredible. Uh, they really are. Um, Tim uh, is the man. He's he's in my opinion. He's one of one of the best, if not the best, strategists on on pit lane. And uh, you know, we have the the entire crew to support that. You know, whether it's the engineers that are pitching in um, and helping create those decisions, or it's the, the team executing on pit lane. Uh, everything that we're doing, we're really in lockstep. And honestly. 
we, we game out everything before the race as, as much as we can. You have to adjust. There's always changes. Um, you can't be locked into one thing or another. But we try and look at everything that could possibly happen and at least have some scenarios put in place. And the really cool thing is when we have our strategy meetings, for the most part, what we talk about, um, it, it generally comes to fruition. It, it's crazy. I don't know how this always happens, but we will talk through some different scenarios. And most of the time, one of the scenarios we've talked about ends up happening and, and we end up following the procedure that we lay out beforehand and it, it just ends up working out. So um, the preparation is in, incredible uh, and the guys executing and the guys ability to, to adjust on the fly when they, when they need to, and they see something happen such as a caution or whatever it is, they're, they're just so good at adjusting and making the right call. And this year they've just nailed it. I hope that we don't change. I hope they you know continue to have their, their mojo because they have been on it and I've just been trying to, you know, do my part as well to support that. And it, it so far has been clicking uh, fantastically this year. Can we confirm you guys also had a strategy plan if Texas Motor Speedway CEO Eddie Gossage ran out in the middle of the track and started wolfing down a beef brisket taco pizza sandwich or whatever crazy <laughs> inventions they come up with, culinary inventions they have each year? I'm guessing that might have been on the old Cindric uh, playlist as well. Now that one, that one would have infuriated us because we would not have been planning for that. And we would have wanted to know why that was not told and we didn't expect it, but it's a good point. That would be very Texas esque <laughs> if they did something like that. So we're going to lead off here with a couple more Texas questions. This one comes in from Christian Denevsky who says, Joseph, were you confident that you would be able to hold off Alexander Rossi at the end? It seemed as though the outside line, which Rossi was working wasn't really working in terms of making passes all night. And I'll also maybe ask you to expand a little bit on, there seemed to be a little bit of post-race surprise. Not, I don't know if Rossi was the one, but a few that kind of had the, where the hell did he come from, right? Hey, he wasn't the guy who was seemingly there for most of the race up front, but maybe share with folks who weren't watching or, or weren't aware, you were silently doing some pretty amazing work, maybe outside of the uh, the TV cameras that were focusing on the fight at the front before you and Rossi got busy at the end. Well, first off, what what I love is I think we continue to surprise people in races, uh, which is great. You know that to me that actually puts a smile on my face because we go about our work very well, but we're a little bit stealthy by doing it. I can tell you this though: if you want to know how. The, it's all out there in detail. If you go look at the analytics, uh, it, it is it is there to be seen, and you will understand easily why we were able to do what we did. Um, and that starts with having a fast car. You've got to be quick when you when at the right points in that race. And what we did strategy wise, and where we positioned ourselves from a from a fuel standpoint on our second to last pit stop. Uh, enabled us to, to, to be in a position when everyone pitted to run quick laps, to have the best in lap, to have the best pit stop, and then to leapfrog to the front and just capitalize on that attack mode. You know, we were in the attack when, when everyone was kind of in the defense, um, trying to make it on fuel. So, uh, it's just, you know, you've got to be able to work all those things. And, um, you know, these, these guys do it so, so, so well. But then to, to answer the other part with, with Rossi on, on the restart, um, it really started with Dixon and I was, I was very nervous about that. You know, normally when the weather cools off and the cars become draggier, that's when it's very difficult to hold people back, especially on a restart. And, and I was really nervous with, with both, both Dixon and Rossi once we got going, if I was going to be able to hold them going into turn one. 
And fortunately, we just held enough um, to where it, it didn't become a problem. But, you know, Alex was so good that night, and and so was Dixon. You know, if, if Dixon didn't got, get caught up in the incident with, with Colton, then I think it would have been a battle with him. You know, and Colton and Rossi, I mean, it just would have been whole, hard to hold anybody off. But um, the good thing is our car out front was what it needed to be. And, you know, in traffic, we suffered a little bit more than others. But I think out front, our car was very good. And as long as someone didn't clear me, then I thought we were going to be just fine. You know, I'm actually going to pull a couple of questions forward. They are related, but maybe also a little bit uh, state of the union. So one of the thoughts I've been having going back to India a little bit, but primarily Detroit as well, seems like you and Rossi are in a pretty good place together in terms of rivalry. And I don't mean true, you know, you guys are shooting nasty looks at each other, but just that dream scenario we would think for IndyCar, two still young Americans really reaching the their prime and kind of week in, week out, you guys are on top of one another. Any thoughts about this emerging, again, whether you call it rivalry, I don't know what, but if we're talking about things we want to write about and we hope will help promote the sport, a new garden, Rossi, red, white, and blue, one and two fighting for the championship, that seems to be something that I think can move the sport forward. Do you agree? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I've never been one to look too aggressively into, you know, who are the, you know, what, what nations are being represented and who are the big rivalries. I think it is great for sports and I would agree. I just, you know, to me, I don't pay too much attention to it and that's not because I don't want to answer the question. I just, I really don't. I mean, for me, it doesn't really matter. I look at everyone out there that I'm going to be in competition with. And if you're asking that question, then without a doubt, Alex is, 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 a huge part of the equation when you look at the landscape of who's competitive and who's on the radar, you know, he is right up there towards the top. Um, and you got a couple guys there, you know, Dixon, without a doubt, he's always there. I think Rossi is 100% of that conversation and you can see he's there every, every week. So he has to be, and then you got your teammates, you know, Simon's in that equation, Will's in that equation. But, um, you know, I think Rossi has shown that he's, he is, you know, one of the prominent members and he's become that over the last 24 months. And um, I think it speaks to, you know, the, the team he's on. They have a very strong team right now at Andretti Autosport. And I think it speaks to him, too. I think he's a very talented driver and very difficult to beat. Um, so, yeah, I, I look at him as, you know, one of the top guys that you've got you to go against and you've got to put into your equation for the whole year. Now, you know, how that's going to evolve and what does that mean for – the sport and for the articles that's you know that's i think that's a question for you so i'll leave that one on you marshall but uh you know without a doubt he is he is one of the guys that you have to be every single week to show up to the track now i love the fact that you guys have crazy jeremy millis as the uh, the unique tie that binds you um <laughs> alan bandy asks a related question talking about this what does seem to be like a rossi in new garden uh, little dance combo he says how does it affect your driving if at all knowing that the guy you're trying to keep ahead of is going to race you hard but also fair and i would say that really has been the spirit we've seen so far it's not like the two of you are constantly you know knocking wings and wheels off of one another yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I think Rossi's quite a consistent racer. Um, you know, you know what you're going to get from him. You know, you're going to get very, very hard driving. He's going to push you. 
but uh, you know, he only, he only goes to a certain degree and, and you can kind of account for that, I think. And you have to, you got to know where everyone's limits are and what their sort of traits are as far as how they drive and how they race in close quarters. And I think with Rossi, you see a very aggressive driving style. Um, but it, it, but there's always, you know, there's always a point where that stops. I mean, he, he drives aggressively to a point and you kind of consistently know where that is and you can benchmark that. So, yeah, I think it, I think it helps because he's consistent on the way that he drives. It gives you, it gives you sort of some parameters to operate in with him and probably vice versa. You know, he, he does the same thing with me. He's going to look at how I drive and he knows my tendencies and he's going to kind of shape his, his, uh, you know, his way of attack around me with, with historically what he knows that I do. And I, I think I'm pretty consistent for the most part as well. Um, but it's, you know, that's no different than another competitor. You look at the same thing for a guy like Dixon and power and Pagano, it's the same deal. You kind of measure all these guys and you build a profile for them and then you race them accordingly. But, um, I, yeah, just to answer the Rossi, I think he's quite consistent in the way he drives. He's very aggressive, but, um, but I think he is fair. I would agree that if he's, you know, he's fair at the end of the day. Let's go back to Texas here. Robbie Bergen asks a question that if I had been there, I would have been asking you right after the race. It says, Joseph, how did you keep the tires under you so well on that stint that put you into the lead? And I would maybe just move that back to the uh, the kind of out of the spotlight uh, stint as well, where you were doing, you know, 217s, 218s plus, and the leaders were down in the whatever, 210, 212, trying to save fuel. Seems like you're able to put up a lot of speed for a long duration. How did you save your tires? Well, you know, it started with having a good car up front. Uh, it, we struggled in the pack, so we were kind of stalking that front group all day. But I, I, I struggled to make progress going forward. Um, you know, I could get there really quickly, or if I had to get through a lap car, you know, the, the, the front group would get through them, then I would get through them, and then I'd catch them very quickly. But it's just once I got there, I couldn't make much happen. So our cars in dirty air were not very strong on Saturday night. But once the, you know, kind of seas parted, we could run super quick. And I, I saw that we could do that earlier in the race. So I even said on the radio, I said, look, if you just get us out front and you get us some track position, I think we've got a good enough car to win. It's just hard for me to get, get through the mess and get there. Um, so it started with that. And, and then once you kind of understood the landscape from what we were doing with that second to last pit stop, we were kind of biding our time. You know, for me, it was about, okay, I'm going to save some fuel too. I'm going to max maximize my window and then we're going to run hard. So I tried to not use up my tires too much earlier in that stint. And then I really hammered out some quick laps before that last pit stop. We're going to get to the next two questions. I think they might be the best of the entire episode. First one's from Brandon Smith, who says, Joseph, excellent burnout. He says, it seems like you don't see too many of those these days in IndyCar. Who in your team gets to make the call on whether you get to burn some rubber after a win? <laughs> well, it's it's tough. Yeah, it is tough to know what you can or can't do. I think, you know, really, you, you could probably do a burnout or donut whenever at the end of the race. You just have to be quite careful in the way you use the limiter on, on the engine. You don't want to inflict any unnecessary wear or tear because it could be self-inflicting. Uh, to your performance later on in the year. I mean, we have to run these engines sometimes four or five races before we change them out, you know, just because of the 2,500 mile um, mandated limit or, 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 you know, a lot preference. Yeah. Yeah. You're really supposed to go 2,500 miles on an engine. So, you know, if you got 1,200 miles on an engine, it's only half life. 
and then you inflict wear on it, you don't want to be suffering with this, you know, ill performing engine because of something you did after a post race, you know? So that's where the, the difficulty in celebrating comes in. You're like, ah, oh, I'm so conflicted. I want to celebrate, but I also don't want to ruin my chances for the next race. Um, I think we were getting quite close on this engine. So I, I asked, Hey, is it okay if I have a little bit of fun? <laughs> you asked, and, I didn't. Okay. I mean, I didn't, I just figured you're like, look, man, I just put in a boss drive. I'm the boss at this moment. I've asked myself and I've said, yes, I can do a donut, but you actually <laughs> asked the team. I love that. Oh yeah. I, cause you know me, I would never give up performance. If, if, if there's an area to have it, I do not want to handicap myself. So I, um, I asked, I said, Hey, is this okay? And they, they said, yes. So I went out there and I tried to have a little, little bit of fun. And knowing that you got permission that of course, I'm sure made you feel like, well, I need to honor and respect their decision. And you did. You basically lost the car in the smoke uh, from your burnout. So that, that I was... thought it was pretty decent. The, the burnout. I don't know how everyone would rate it, but I tried to to put on a bit of a smoke show. You were making a statement. That's what I appreciate. There's the token burnout. The oh, I'm supposed to burn out. I won. Then there's the hell yeah. It looked like you were you know riding a little bronco there. So I loved it. Um, Let's go to what might be the best question. It could be the best one we've gotten all year long. This comes in from Nathan DeRover, who I had a the good chance to meet recently. Thanks for sending this in, Nathan. He says, I've been waiting a long time to ask Joseph to talk about the 2014 Veins of Milk video. He says, I don't, I don't even know what to ask because I have so many questions. And for those who are listening, check out our little Marshall Pruitt podcast facebook page i'll try and remember to throw this up on twitter when we post the uh the episode uh the link to this youtube video it is disturbing it's like half almost bondage video i don't know how to describe this but you did it um how often do you get asked about this man so i'm so glad someone's asked me this i feel like i can finally speak about this and give my side of the story please so let me let me just enlighten everyone on how this all went down so this was back when abc was still producing the indy 500 and uh, i was told that they wanted to do a pre-race feature with me and that they had this really like prolific director cinematographer who's like world-renowned and he wants to come do this piece at indy and like they want to use me and, and this like, is wow, your that's... third year in the series this is like a really big spotlight really for the first time uh, i have to imagine this was like whoa this is a big oh, deal yeah. i was like oh wow i was like thank you that's like what an honor that you guys want to feature me like that's so cool like I, what a, thank you i appreciate it and uh so of course we're like yeah absolutely we'll do this it's an indy 500 it's a big deal it's gonna be good for the team and uh, so we show up, we're, you know, we're at Indianapolis, uh, we're at the Motor Speedway, and, and they're there, they're filming, and, and they've got my car in the garage, and it kind of starts with a couple little little bits and pieces that you're, that you're filming, and then, then I get in the, the, the race car, and it's in the garage, and they have it all lit, you know, very moody and dramatic, and they got some smoke, and they're like, I started talking to the director, and he starts telling me what he wants me to do, he's like, you know, I want you to get in the car, and I want you to just scream and kind of, you know, kind of turn your head. I want to see the sides of your veins and in, in, in your neck. And it's just, it's going to look so cool. We're going to pop them out. We're going to act like blood's coming, or, you know, milk's coming out of your veins. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, that's a bit aggressive. This is, but he's like, I, I, at that point when he started describing this, I'm like, this seems 
this, I don't know what this is, but I don't know if this is for me. And he's like, Joseph, do not worry about it. This is going to be the most amazing piece I've ever made. He said, this is going to be just like Gladiator. Have you ever seen the movie Gladiator, Joseph? I'm like, yeah, I've seen the movie Gladiator. It's one of my favorite movies ever. He's like, it's going to be just like that. We're going to have some pieces of you just walking next to the car, touching the rear of the wing lightly, you know, like you're a glad. He's like, it's going to be amazing. Just trust me. So I, I trusted this guy. I'm like, okay, this, I'm going to look like Gladiator during the Indy 500. I'm super pumped. I'll do whatever this guy says. So I do these screaming bits inside the car, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I leave, you know, there wasn't actually much to my part. Like I, you know, I sip the milk and, and then put it down and, you know, I'm in the car screaming and, and all that. That's really all I did in the, in the piece. And then we see the piece and it's like all this other footage that like, I, I had no idea they captured and it was in a warehouse and there's, there's a big guy in a, in a very slim black suit. And Latex. Yeah. A woman. I, like, I had no idea about any of this stuff. I, I hadn't seen any of that Marshall before they actually <laughs> made the piece. So I had no idea what it was going to turn into. And then you see what happened. Bathtub full of milk, woman in full black latex suit. Again, bondagey dipping her extremities in there. The, there's the big burly guy standing up in the bathtub full of milk. Uh, you're screaming and, and racing on track with your helmet off, naturally. And yes, you've got the uh, the glowing milk vein stuff showing on your face. <sighs> This was, was almost rated X. I mean, <laughs> yet it was the ABC pre-race feature with you. What kind of feedback did you? And here's the thing. I didn't see it. Uh, you know, I guess I'm there covering the race or whatever. So I didn't see it. I didn't remember it till Nathan mentioned it and, and dropped the link here for me to watch. But after picking my jaw up off the floor, I my first thought was, what was your initial response and or what were the was the response of others? I guess after the race, when you might have seen it. Well, I, I so I never saw it either until after the race, right? Like I didn't have any idea, and I just remember getting feedback of like, you know, and I don't think it was a particularly good Indy Five Hundred. So it's like, you know, we didn't have a great race, and people are like, "Hey, sorry about your race," but you know that that pre race uh, pre race piece you did was interesting. It was like, you know, kind of kind of strange. And I would just get like comments like that. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And then people are like, man, you should really look at what they did. Like, that's a really, really weird piece that was before the race. And I'm like all confused. I'm like, what? Like, I, I didn't do anything that weird before the race. And like, people are very concerned about it. And then I saw it. I finally found the video and I'm like, what the heck was that? Like, I, it was, I had the same reaction as everyone else. I hadn't seen it. I didn't know they were making that. And then it was just, it turned into this thing for a couple of weeks where I was this weird milk guy before the Indy 500. Oh, Jesus. And fortunately, like, it's all, I'm pretty sure it's all blown over now. Like, no one really knows about it except for a couple people. Thank you for the question. It's it's great, but I don't think it's lingered, which is a good thing. So naturally, we're going to dig it back up five years later and make it a thing, <laughs> of course. Um did you ever hear from or communicate with the director who's going to make you look like Maximus New Gardeness in uh, in Gladiator? Do, do you want to know the greatest thing is I, I'm pretty sure, and I remember this. I can't remember exactly what it got. It got that piece got nominated for like <laughs> some sort of cinematography award on something. I don't think it won, but like that piece was nominated for like a very great 
well-made cinematography piece. Like I, I'm so confused how, but I'm pretty sure it, it was in there somewhere. Oh, this is the best story, best worst story ever. Yeah, uh, we have to look that up. I, I think it was like for ESPN sports documentary, it, like someone nominated it for something and I have no idea how. Uh, well, yeah, it was probably some porn site that nominated it, but that's fine. We'll just leave <laughs> that the way it is. All right, let's go to uh, Car McFast. Uh, I love names on social media. Who says, Joseph, what is your favorite non-racing summer activity? And someone else also asked, what do you guys do to recharge for the second half of the season? And this is all pivoting off of the final arrival of the mid-season break here. Well, I am a big homebody. So if I can, you know, I like to be home for the summer, relaxing, relaxing. I'm pretty low key. So I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a movie buff. I love to be home watching movies. Um, I I'm kind of a pool guy. Like, you know, some people love going to the lake. Some people like going to the ocean if you have access to it and I like a pool. So if someone's got a pool, you gotta, you gotta have friends that it's like having a friend that has a boat. You gotta have a friend that has a pool. And, um, I like having, you know, those summer days by the pool is very cool. And, And for us, actually, that's the most relaxing thing is just being at home because we travel so much that when you're at home, you you really cherish that time to just relax and be kind of low key and hang out with your family and, you know, go out to dinner or just spend those, those really nice summer evenings, you know, at at home together. That's, that's what I like. So I don't do anything dramatic um, or anything crazy. I'm not like, you know, trotting all over the globe because we've already been doing that. So we don't need to do that. Uh, So yeah, very easy at at home. Uh, And what was the, what was the second part of that question? Uh, just wondering about what you guys do to recharge for the second half of the season. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that 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 pretty much encompasses it. So you loop into it that way too. Is is spent for me spending that time at home is what helps me recharge. You know what? It just drains me. And some people are better at this than others. I'm not very good at it. I, I get quite drained by just you know constant um, you know just constant exposure to to people and. And, you know, everything that we're doing in racing, you know, it sounds kind of funny, but like I'm, I'm quite an introvert myself. So when I'm around all that content and that many people for, for an extended period of time, it just wears me out. My battery level just goes to zero. So it's not necessarily the physical side of it or, you know, it's not like we're doing strenuous labor every day. It's just the, the mentally taxing bit of, you know, being around people for so much time that wears on me. So really just being at home you know, not having as many commitments, being able to, to hang out with family and, and, you know, you know, not have any stress on you is, is, is really the best way to recharge. And then, then you feel good about going into a new weekend. You've had four or five days of, of no big commitments or responsibilities. And then you can you know feel fresh going into a, a high intensity, uh, intense IndyCar weekend. I was so hoping you're going to say reporters and their stupid questions, but, um, <laughs> so it's been, it's been almost 17 years since I proposed to my wife and we then set about very quickly on the whole wedding planning. So I ask this honestly, it's been long enough to where I've kind of forgotten a little bit. Uh, you, who are, are headed down this path, having proposed to your lovely lady, does that factor into any of your kind of daily and or in-between race kind of efforts and preparation and such, getting ready for a wedding? Is she taking that burden, a lot of that burden off you? Where does that factor in as well? yeah it's uh you know actually this has probably been you know i'm normally quite private so i don't i don't talk too much about my personal like schedule but this has probably been the most 
uh, loaded year for me mm. as, just for everything. Like we ended up moving back to Nashville in February, right before the season started. And, you know, it's pretty, it's kind of throwback. We're living in a, a small apartment right now, which has been, it's actually been quite fun because it, you know, it feels like eight years ago for me. So it's, it's very fun. And we're planning the wedding. We're planning on maybe building a house. <laughs> so we're doing that. Wow. So there's just like so much happening this year. And then you have all the commitments of racing on top of that, which, which really take the priority. I mean, it's, it's sad. And, and I hate to do this to Ashley, but she knows the drill, like the racing stuff is the priority. So you have all this stuff in the background going on, the wedding, maybe building a house, you know, relocating, trying to figure out just everything in your personal life. But you really got to put all your energy on this racing gig, which has a ton of travel and a ton of commitments and video shoots and testing and sim, sim, sim time and all that. So it's, it has been a very taxing year, but Ashley's doing a great job. She definitely takes the reins with the wedding planning. Um, we've tried to simplify it. She's, she's been quite simple about it, which is awesome. I think you can, I think you can really overdo a wedding, you know, for, for race car drivers, which are pretty like meticulous about details. Oh yeah. I think for us, like we, you realize pretty quickly, this, this doesn't have to be complicated. Like it really doesn't like it is if you don't make it complicated, it can be a very simple process. So she's done a great job about letting it be simple. And I think we've gotten through most of it very easily. And yeah, we're just trying to, you know, we're just trying to stay on top of it and manage it. We got that rolling pretty nicely and the relocations moved, moved along pretty good. And then, you know, the racing gigs kind of taking care of itself right now. So everything's, it's been the most loaded up of any year, but it's actually going quite well. Well, you and I did a story at somewhere between, I don't know, Long Beach and wherever, but just talking about your simplified approach to the year. And again, knowing that you proposed to her during the off season, you knew all these things were happening ahead of time coming into 2019 and there we're we're going to acknowledge i think all year long the fact that you knew 2019 was going to be busy on a personal front so rather than try and just keep doing things the way you had been doing and pile more on top and expect to be fighting for a championship you realize that now actually this downsizing wherever possible on the personal side you know moving to that small apartment etc trying to be more efficient with your commitments, right? Not saying yes to every little thing, but okay, maybe having a little bit more mental peace when possible. That's going to be the thing that helps me achieve to a higher degree on the racetrack. Not saying that's the only component that's contributed to this so far, but I think it'd be silly to say you going into the halfway point, three wins, leading the championship with everything else you've taken on in the personal front. There's some connectedness here of decision-making in the outcome kind of paying off the way you'd hope so far. So definitely pretty smart on your end. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, it, it's funny. Like you, I think you learn to trust your resources and you, you almost have to when you're this busy. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky. I'm very lucky that I've got a tremendous amount of help and resources around me. And so you just learn to not necessarily delegate, but just trust the the people around you and, and what they're going to be doing. You know, it's like on the racing front, it's like, you know, I got my guy Gavin and he's, he's looking after me. Like I know he's looking after me as long as I put in the work that he needs from me. He's killing it this of, year, which is so awesome yeah, to see. He He's doing amazing. And so as long as I give him the work that he needs and, you know, I, I get it to him timely, like I know he's going to take care of everything. It's the same thing with like Travis Law. If there's anything I need on the car, like Travis is on top of it. And then it, that just goes down the line. You, 
everyone that's there, Jerry, who takes care of my helmets. Like there's so many people in place for everything that you're doing. And, you know, if you have the resources, then you got to learn to just trust them and they'll take care of you. And I've been really, really lucky with that. I have, I have a tremendous amount of support. So, you know, it's hard because it, it, it's easy on us, dude. I don't even know what to say. Like, it's honestly easy on us. Everyone makes it pretty easy on these race car drivers. <laughs> You've got a five foot five dynamo in your crew chief, Travis Law. Just kidding. I don't know how tall he is, but he's not the biggest guy, but he's kicking a lot of butt. You've got a lot of people there pulling for you. Then you've also got Brian Simpson, who I politely refer to as the uh, Fonsworth Bentley to your P. Diddy, you know, kind of holding the umbrella. He's going to kill me when he hears this. Anyways, no, but you're fortunate, man. You've put together either in the areas where you can decide, you've put together a really good support team, and then the Team Penske folks have also done that for you as well. Let's go to uh, Daniel Kincaid, who says, It seemed like most of the drivers were having oversteer moments last weekend on the exit of turn two. Is that just a characteristic of the track, or is it something else like the air or tires, temperature, etc.? Don't know if you were having any of those, wait a minute, the corner goes left and I'm turning right type uh, moments, but we did see a lot of folks trying to manage oversteer. Yeah, for sure. It's a it's a normal characteristic of, of Texas. You know, it might have been accentuated this year with the tire change and the aero change, um, probably more so the tire change and the balance on that. But um, with Texas, it, you know, there's kind of for me the normal the normal car feel overall deal for how it works there is when you transition into the banking at Texas. So the entry to one and the exit of two, and they're really the same thing: entry to three and exit of four. Those moments become quite light, quite nervous, um, more oversteer uh, prone as you're getting crossway change. So as the car loads in the banking, it becomes very light, very nervous. And then generally you can either pick up, you know, you pick up understeer in the center of the corner when the car's fully loaded right in the center. So you're dealing with these transition periods and then you deal with the center. And that's kind of how those are the main talking points that I have with my engineer around Texas. So what you're seeing off turn two, that's one of those transition points and the car in the transition can be quite light. You can have a lot of oversteer there. Um, and depending on where you are in, the dirty air you can you can make that worse you know you can have a bunch of understeer out of the center of the corner into the transition and then have too much wheel into the car when you get to that transition and that just unloads the rear if you don't get the you know you don't get the understeer out in time so i think it's very texas-esque what people were seeing just that light unloaded transition off turn two it's just very tricky to keep the rear underneath there and our friend Andrew C. has a question that's related, talking about a couple years ago, he says, a reprofiling a bit of the turn one and two banking. Has that changed or contributed to that sense at all that you just mentioned? Um, yes, a bit. Yeah, I, I thought the, well, it, it depends on probably the car you're running, what setup you have on. I mean, there's a lot of things that factor into that. I think for us, uh, the turn two exit did get more severe. I know for me it did. Um, you know, as you come off of there, you, you, the angle that you're coming off now, um, can be more severe. Um, you know, bef- before it felt more like off turn four where, you know, the, the car did become light and you did get an oversteer prone moment off the corner, but now it's because it's longer. It's almost like that moment lasts longer as well. The, you know, the, the shaping of, of turn two, I think, where that transition moment and you had oversteer off of turn two before was, was quite short. Now it feels like it's a longer moment. So you're in that period for a longer, you know, bit of time. So yeah, I think it got a bit worse with the track and thing. 
All right, we're getting to the home stretch here. Last handful of questions, and I kind of save these, move these to the end because most of them are kind of fun. Uh, Ryan Terpstra says, question for Joseph. Roger Penske comes to you and says, I'm going to put you in one of my other cars for a single race, but you get to pick the series and the race. What do you choose? A NASCAR road course, 24 hours of Daytona, Bathurst 1000, Daytona 500. What comes to mind? Where's the where's the Bristol night race? You know, Ooh. I mean, let's go. <laughs> I mean, that's like first in my mind is Bristol. Um, I would love to go do a short oval in in uh, in cup. I think that'd be really cool. But, you know, Bathurst is for sure up on the list, too. I think Will and me are petitioning very hard to go do that right now. <laughs> oh, a new garden power Bathurst 1000 entry. I am down for that. I mean, I, you know, you see what we're talking about. I think it'd be quite cool. So we, we want to go do that. Um, but, yeah, I think I think a short oval cup race would definitely be very high up on my list. Like a Bristol night race would be awesome. I've been to Bathurst once to cover it. I have a, a lifelong uh, memento, a scar on my right leg. I'm the American who actually fell up the hill after tripping on a piece of steel that I didn't see that was sunk in there. So I love the place. It's amazing. You need to go. No scars for you, though. But, yeah, you definitely need to make that happen. Uh, let's see. Oh, Ryan does have one kind of request, if possible. He says, P.S., can you please say something mean about Rossi? This championship battle could use some animosity. So I don't know. Does he have, like, bad breath? You know, what, what can we come up with? Um, uh, he has a podcast, good. but you do as well. Folks might not know that you and Tony Kanon do your uh, big machine vodka podcast. <laughs> That's true. You could talk some podcast smack. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's cool if he likes playing, you know, sidekick to hints on his podcast and that's. <laughs> That's cool. Tony and me don't do that. It's very much a jointly hosted thing. But, you know, Rossi's kind of like the second fiddle on his podcast. So oh, murder. That's, that's fine. You know, that's what it is. But it's just observational, you know. Uh, I, I see you feel as if you're a leader. So should I call Kanan right now and ask him how he likes being number two on your, your co-podcast? Not a problem. Hey, I he's kind. You know, Kanan, he gets it. Like, uh, you know, he's happy to be around still. So. He's, oh, look, man. All right. Uh, yeah. Now we're talking smack about Tony. I didn't even mean to start with that. Joseph, it's been good knowing you. I wish you well in the afterlife. Um, <laughs> oh, Lord here. All right. I love you, Tony. I'm yeah, oh, we love you so much. We're taking shots at you, and you don't even know it. Um, let's go to Ed Berg. He said, all right, this is a great one. We pose this one to Hinch as well. He says, what is one thing that other drivers do on the racetrack that might be legal, but it drives you crazy anyways? Uh, well, you know, Detroit, <laughs> Detroit race two would have been – a case of that, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not even, you know, trying to place blame on something, but I think, you know, coming out of the pits, what you, you really, you really shouldn't be going straight to the apex. And I don't even know, to be honest with you, how we define this in the rules. I think technically what Hinch did at Detroit coming out of the pits, going straight to the apex in turn one or turn two is, uh, I think that's legal. I think by the letter of the law, you could, you could do that. But I, I think if you asked race control, if they want that to be allowed, they would say no, then that shouldn't be legal. So that kind of drives me nuts when people, 
you know, play with that kind of gray area. Um, I actually think it's probably something we should change, but yeah, other than that, I don't know. I don't know what I would, I, I mean, I'd have to think about it. You know, there's probably a lot of little things that, that bug me. This might be a fun kind of work down the list and come up with a whole list of pet peeves. But then the bad thing would be all the drivers would read it and then know, ha ha ha, this guy's coming yeah. up in my mirrors. Guess what I'm going to do? Cause he told me he hates it. We're a, mm-hmm. we're a petty tribe, aren't you, we? You know what else, what else happens when I think about it is you, you, the lane etiquette in pit lane is not great. You're really supposed to transition into the slow lane from the fast lane before you come into your pit box. And that rarely happens. I mean, you just kind of know when you're coming into the pits that people are pulling straight from the fast lane. It's just, it's just how it's going to go. It's not, they're not supposed to do it, but that's what happens. So that, that drives me nuts. All right. Let's go to, as we get down to the last couple here, Curtis Boggs. Great question, Curtis for Joseph. I can only recall two guys who have won the RoboPong 200 kart race and an IndyCar race at Texas. Who's the better carter of the two, Mark Dismore or Joseph Newgarden? <laughs> That's true. Mark Dismore did win at Texas, and um, Mark is very handy in a cart. He's, uh, I think his, long, his longevity skills in, in the cart are in question at the moment. You know, he, he definitely peters out a bit, but he's incredibly quick legend. Um, he is a legend. He, he taught me a lot about racing carts when I was a kid. So yeah, he's great. I, it's, it's actually really cool. So the Robopong 200 was, was to me the coolest cart race in North America ever. And they used to have hundred plus entries. I mean, I'm talking, this was big and they'd pay out 10 grand to win, 200 miles at Newcastle Motorsports park. And I got to, I've run it, I've run it with both Dismore Sr. and Dismore Jr. And I got to win it with both of them. Wow. So I, it's, it was very cool for me because I started racing carts at Newcastle when I was 13. And, and those are the guys that kind of brought me up. So it was very cool. I get to make an old man statement here of having been in awe in watching Mark Dismore when he started his Atlantic career back in the day. So before he became a uh, IndyCar driver and whatnot, uh, but yeah, getting to watch Diz as the uh, one of the factory Swift Atlantic race car drivers. Oh boy, that guy was just absolutely nuts. Sponsored by Comet Cart Sales, so all kinds of. He fun was a there. badass dude. He was he was the man. Never rarely had equipment in IndyCar that uh, befitted his talent. He did have some good years with the uh, Kelly team and the IRL, but. Never what he should have had in the cart IndyCar series because, yeah, that guy was bad fast. All right, we're down to three to go. J.D. Ellis says, Joseph, what is your favorite event in the Penske games? My favorite event would be anything that requires, like, physical skill Um, because I think that kind of always comes down to Blaney and me. You know, Blaney's pretty athletic. And, um, you know, maybe he's not the strongest, but like, you know, the, the guy can move and he's, he's pretty skilled. Um, so anything, yeah, I, I kind of liked, we did this, uh, I don't even remember what it's called, but we did this one where you had to avoid the swinging arm, kind of like wipe out yeah. and you had to jump to avoid it. was this huge inflatable deal. It was very, very cool. I actually have been petitioning for them to get a full scale, like wipeout style obstacle course. <laughs> that we can go through because <laughs> I think, I think seeing Juan Pablo go through that would be amazing. Oh. Um, 
but I always love that. Yeah, anything obstacle obstacle course style is 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 my favorite. Oh, I love it. All right, we, we're closing here on two related questions, and I've actually been wanting to ask you about this uh, for a little while, and I might actually spin this out into a separate little column. Jack Homan says, Joseph, did you get to drink from the chalice of excellence? And also, have you considered a different line of work? <laughs> well, Jerry Cowan had the chalice of excellence in, in Texas. He was bestowed that before the race. And he brought it to Victory Lane as he is supposed to. And it was filled with, I don't know what liquid. There was liquid in it. And I saw it, I held it up, and I gave it right back. I don't know what was in there, but he was happy. The team was happy, so I let him do the thing. Did it smell like um, ammonia? I mean, I'm trying to figure out, you know, did it? was it pungent? Did it smell it, like, you know, someone clear. relieved themselves? What's going on? <laughs> it looked clear. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what it was. I didn't smell anything in it, but I gave it right back because it wasn't my challenge to the night. Uh, but I have, I have had a sip out of it. And it is it is mythical. It's uh, you got to be careful because it's got two dueling dragons protecting it. So you got to kind of navigate those waters when you when you try and sip out of the chalice. But it's uh, it's an amazing it's an amazing vessel. You know that thing. It's got some powers. I'm telling you what. It's growing. It's growing in its in its allure. And before I get to the final question here about the chalice from our pal Anthony Ghosh, I am convinced that this is the most fun thing at the moment in motor racing and i know it's only specific to one team and if you follow indycar then you'll know about it but if you follow something else you might not but do you agree do you think this chalice of excellence thing that's been created that i think came to light after the uh, the barber race uh, when gavin was trying to slide it into the frame on camera and when we learned about it publicly at least I mean, this this to me is just so much fun, and it shows a, a side of Team Penske that I don't know if everyone believes actually existed. Well, what I can say is that we feel very fortunate to have the chalice in our possession on the two car. Um, we don't actually know the origin of it. There's been a lot of talk about its backstory, and there's there's a lot of conflicting rumors and reports on on its history and where it comes from. <laughs> But one thing we know is that it, it does contain some sort of mysterious otherworldly power. And we, we don't know how to necessarily capture it. Uh, we, just, we just find that whoever is in possession of it seems to be benefiting from it. So we, we, we tightly guard it. We protect it. Um, we have been trying to dissect its history, but have not, you know, we haven't gotten there. We haven't had much time with it yet, but it, it is. It is a fantastic goblet uh, of, of people, and it it will reign long and supreme, hopefully, on, on the two-car for, for many years to come. And what are the rules surrounding it? Uh, I mean, I see it getting handed off. I saw it was given to Sindrick, which he seemed to be blown away, like, whoa, you're giving it to me? And But what are the rules? When is there a clock? Do you guys, you know, is there a countdown to when it has to be handed off? Who makes these decisions? You fill me in a little bit of the rules and strategy here. Well, there there are some ground rules for sure. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of a governance of it. Uh, we're still figuring that out. You know, it's a learning process for us as well. But uh, the chalice is is bestowed to the the worthy recipient from the previous race weekend so 
Jerry was bestowed with the chalice from Detroit race two. Tim had it in, in, in race one. It was bestowed to him and you saw what happened there. So I'm, you know, I'm not trying to connect too many dots here, but race one was pretty successful, you know, partly due to a guy named Tim Cindric. So, um, yeah, if it, it's at each race, it gets passed off and it has to be in their possession and they need to guard it. They need to protect it. And they also need to have uh, you know, they need, they need to have some history with the chalice. And, and by that is you, we need to know chronologically and, and documented. We, we have to have it documented what happened with you and the chalice and where you've been, what have you seen and what has transpired. And that has to be that has to be conveyed to the group throughout the week that you have it or two weeks, however long that you have the chalice. And then you pass it on to whoever the next worthy recipient is. So. It's uh yeah there's there's a bit of a process we're still learning it you know we again it's it's a very powerful object so we we don't have a full handle on it yet but we're we are getting there. Are you hearing any jealousy out of Rogers Cup teams the uh, the IMSA team and whatnot have they tried to steal it to improve their own odds of success? Oh there's 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 inter team jealousy that I find you know there's there's other cars that that want in on this chalice action and. You know, it, there's there's kind of an unspoken rule. It's not going to leave the two car. Like it has to stay within the two car. But we kind of, you know, we we let other teams believe they could potentially earn the chalice. You know, so then they're on they're on good behavior. Then you know they try and they try and put in the work to earn the chalice. When in reality, they're really never going to get the chalice. It can't leave the two car. But you know, giving them that false sense of hope, it's it's interesting. People will, you know, they really they shape up when they think they can get the chalice. It's quite fascinating to see the, the human dynamic. <laughs> uh, new guy, you're the best in the world. All right, we're going to close with Anthony Gosha's question, which uh, pivots off of what you have maybe consumed or not consumed. He says, what is the strangest thing that you know of that someone has consumed by drinking from the chalice of excellence? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, couldn't even, I couldn't tell you. I don't actually know. I've seen photos and I don't know what liquid has been in that chalice, but it has seen, it has seen all walks of life from what I can, can gather from the photos. So yeah, I don't know. Probably any, anything that you can imagine has probably been in that chalice now. Do we need like a North Carolina CSI to come by, take some swabs, run it through the spectrometer and, you know, DNA analysis. I don't know. Um, we might learn some things we don't want to learn, but it sounds like this, this is going to need to receive the full attention of like an archeological dig at some point, find out what it's made of, what's been inside of it. Are let's close on this. Are there any human sacrifices planned to the chalice of excellence? I, you know what? Everything's open, Marshall. We don't know. It's so early. It's so early in this, in our journey with it that we just don't, we don't know where this is going. We really don't. And we need to stay vigilant. We need to stay, you know, we need to stay alert uh, just for the what ifs. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what power this thing holds. We, we know it's a lot, but we just don't know the ultimate power. So we need to, I think we need to be a little bit cautious around it and make sure we don't get ahead of ourselves. Oh, good Lord. This is the best. If you don't happen to follow Instagram, if you don't have an Instagram account, I strongly urge that you sign up. And if you do nothing else, follow the chalice of excellence. If you need a pick me up and I can tell you, there's been some times recently where I've needed a pick me up. It has been a great friend because you guys are hilarious. And I just love the fact that team Penske and the personality that's been there all along 
that we know behind the scenes. Maybe, again, on the public front, not everyone gets to see uh, how kind of fun and warm and, and gregarious you guys are. But I'm glad that this silly little goblet is helping folks to understand that, you know, these are some pretty cool characters. It is great, dude. It is great. Please go find it. I'm not going to tell you what the account name is, but you will find it. Joseph, thanks so much for taking some time, my friend, and I'll look forward to hopefully seeing you soon. You too, Marshall. Appreciate it, man. We have the official mayor of Hinchtown, James Hinchcliffe. How are you, my friend? How are you doing? Any bumps and bruises from last weekend? Are you okay? Uh, yeah, no, just emotional ones. But other than that, just uh, just fine. <laughs> Lord. Well, we got a couple of things to get to before we roll into the awesome questions that you always get when you join us here on the Week in IndyCar. First one, you were playing IndyCar in Texas on Saturday. I don't know if you were able to sprint north to the place, what we lovingly call Practice France, uh, that being uh, Quebec and whatnot, and Montreal, a little Formula One race that they had. But really, the big question coming out of last weekend's racing unfortunately wasn't texas it was vettel and hamilton penalty fair not fair well let's get started here uh that was easy i i've yet to meet someone that thought it was fair well uh to, to call that well, and I, I obviously haven't met the stewards for the fia but um to say that it was an unsafe re-entry as if he had much control over the trajectory of his car at that point is a bit, a bit wide of the mark. Um, and it didn't cause an accident though. Hamilton had to check up a little bit. That's called racing. I think, uh, I think it was a very, very cruel decision and it robbed, uh, it robbed the team and the driver of a well-deserved victory and it robbed the fans of, you know, uh, a normal win quick little counterpoint wouldn't the fact that he lost control of his car therefore could not control its trajectory and then as a result forced the driver who claims he pressured him into a mistake who then had to back out to not get hit wouldn't the surrendering of control through an error possibly be something that does not totally exonerate Vettel um I think I think it's quite simple. I think if you pressured a driver into a mistake, you need to be able to capitalize on it. And you were then right on his gearbox heading down to the hairpin and you didn't get the job done. Don't go to the officials to do your work for you. I think Nobody that... wants to win a race like that, especially not a guy that's won like a hundred of them. <laughs> no, that's a great point. That's a great point. On another very salient point, we're recording this Monday afternoon. Tonight is game five of the nba finals you and i are in locked in a heated um, battle yeah so my warriors are down 3-1 we think that i read today that kevin durant is intending to play we don't know about his cardio we don't know reaction time on defense and whatnot so if this continues to go the way that it looks like where your toronto raptors will win and I have to pay my portion of the bet, that being donating blood in support of the uh, charity efforts that you've kicked off uh, in relation to your accident in 2015. 
do we prorate this since not all the warriors have been there to help fight Toronto? Is it liters? No, is Marshall, it pints? No. What I'm, am I no. kind of skirting away from this a little bit? What am I doing? You are in the event of a Raptors win, you will attend the uh, Laguna Seca IndyCar finale, which I assume you're probably going to be at anyway. I've heard about it. At which we are organizing the last of our, I think, eight or nine uh, blood drives attached to IndyCar races that we are uh, we are hosting this season. And you will roll up either your left arm or your right arm, please, and we will extract from you one healthy donation of blood and stuff to uh to benefit some unknown soul so should i start taking performance enhancing drugs to get kind of dinged by some sort of blood you know wada or other that would basically i think the the biggest thing that you've got working against you like the biggest thing you can do to uh to get out of this is if within like a couple weeks of it if you go and get a new tattoo um you're not eligible to, to, to donate so i'll take this you can go get a tattoo of the raptors logo oh. or or you can or you can donate blood damn i'm screwed well seeing as Keeping how in mind one of them is only good for you which is obviously having the raptors um victory immortalized on your skin permanently um, well, the other one is actually beneficial to up to three other people. So just keep that in mind when you make your decision. Okay. If it comes to that. I've, I've made it 48 years without getting a tattoo. So I'm, I, I think I have a pretty good idea but, what the payout's going to be. So, and but you've also made it 48 years without donating blood. <laughs> well, no, that's not true. The last time I did my oh, no? wife, yeah, my wife, obviously anybody who, who, joins the, the military in any way shape or form my father told me he served in the army he said they just treat you like a human pincushion the entire time you they're ju- you're just giving blood day and night because you belong to the government and that's something they like so she okay. was definitely there's been a culture of blood donation in the house led by my wife unfortunately the first slash last time i went with her to do that uh, i believe i threw up and almost fainted and so despite being maybe a stocky guy where folks might think that there's heartiness within my composition, apparently not. <laughs> so come Laguna Seca, uh, we're going to have a hashtag watch MP faint uh, blood donation thing. So I hope somebody films it and makes immense fun of me. And uh, yeah, we, may, we, we might live stream this one. <laughs> this could be entertaining. <laughs> Uh, because this, if you, if you know, if we just film it, we already know the outcome. And if the outcome is not a favorable one, for the audience, of course, not for you. Uh, you know, it's, it's less likely to to get a lot of uh, a lot of impressions. But if we live stream it, everyone's going to tune in to see: do we get a repeat? Yeah, we get an encore performance, or does Marshall just get through it safely and soundly? Yeah. And the, oh my gosh. Yeah, I can just tell this is going to be more personal embarrassment. But again, I embrace this. This is part of my life. Um, all right. Two other quick notes. First of all, how is and I think I have the, the title of the podcast correct, Off Track with the Mayor on Air and Super Producer Alex. Did I nail it? Yes, you did. Basically, anything where you don't mention Sim, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a successful naming of the show. How is it coming along? 
It's going well, man. It's going well. I mean, when we started it, we, both of us were very sort of weary of the commitment of actually doing something like this. Um, but, you know, we have, we, we benefit in two ways. One, we both live in the same city, although that actually works out less often than not. Um, but we're also, we're also pretty good buddies and, and hang out a fair amount anyway. And so it, uh, it actually works out fairly well. I think him and I have differing opinions on enough things to keep it interesting. Mm. I think he likes arguing for the sake of arguing. So that keeps it interesting. Um, and, and yeah, so we were, we were a little bit worried, but you know, we sometimes one of us can't make it and the other guy covers and we help each other out. And it's, it's honestly, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And even, even when there are times where you think, all right, is anybody even really listening? Like this is a, it's a bit of work. Like, should we really even be doing this anymore? You know, we'll go to the next race and have, a bunch of people say how much they enjoy listening to it. And now it's gotten to a point where we generally, you know, genuinely, sorry, don't want to let down the quote unquote fans of off track, which is a crazy thing to think uh, exists, no, uh, but apparently it does. I'm happy for you guys. And where can folks get this fine podcast? Is there one particular home? Is it still cast box or, or cod past or pad cost? Oh, I, again, I'm easily it's, confused. It's, yeah. It's, it's 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 any and all of them. Uh, anywhere that you uh, anywhere you get podcasts, it will be there. As always, you know, like us, rate us, subscribe, all those wonderful things. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a blast. Last thing I want to mention, and this is just saying thanks to you. Actually, another uh, someone in one of their questions said, but big thanks to you and our our friend Stefan. Wilson, the two of you, I uh, woke up to find the two of you were um, bringing awareness to uh, the GoFundMe page that our friends at Racer surprised me with. And without you and Stefan kind of bringing awareness to that, which then exploded, and it's still my wife and I are just sitting here lacking the ability to process what has taken place. Um, just want to say thanks to you, my friend, above and beyond whatever we do, professionally reporter, driver, nonsense. Um, just thank you for being such an amazing friend and helping to light the fire into something that, boy, it's continuing to continuing to burn. Hey, man, it's, uh, as, as I said, you know, uh, at the time and in, in the post sort of trying to bring some awareness to it, there is no one in our in our little corner of the uh, of the of the world that is more selfless and is uh, quicker to jump up and help others when in need than uh, than you, my friend. So uh, very very happy that our family and our community have have shown up in droves uh, to support and uh, and obviously we're we're thinking of both of you every day. Well, enough of the mushy stuff. It's my fault. Let's go to Matt Hickey. Matt says Hinch. With Aero increasing their involvement, it's a huge deal for Aero Schmidt Peterson Motorsports. So far this season, SPM has been strong, but still a step from being that part of the big three, the Andretti, the Ganassi, the Penske that you guys want to be a part of. Matt says, do you foresee the team making that big leap to that big three on a consistent basis, either this season or next? Uh, well, thanks for the question, Matt. And, uh, and the answer is yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, the one thing that's important to remember is, um, you know, r- racing is, a is a difficult business and 
you know, Arrow's, Arrow's added support and, uh, and involvement in the team is, is huge for us, and we are incredibly thankful for them. They're, they are a great, great partner. They have been since 2015, and it just increases. But at the same time, you know, these, these big jumps don't happen overnight. Um, just because you get a check from a sponsor doesn't mean you can go to the speed store and buy a little bit more lap time. You really have to build this stuff, you know, from the ground up internally, and I think we have all the pieces in place to do that. Uh, but it does take time, you know, Andretti's been winning championships for a decade, Ganassi for three, Penske for five. Let's go to three questions that are on a similar theme. First one comes in from Dennis Zosek, who says, James, have you seen any black cats lately? Walked under any ladders? Broken any mirrors, possibly? He says, if you didn't have any bad luck, you'd have none at all this season. Do you think there's still time to turn the season around? Well, you know, I've I've been thinking the same thing myself. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it, there, there's no doubt, you know, what, uh, what's frustrating about our year so far is the team has actually been doing a great job and, you know, we've had pace at almost every race so far. And for one reason or another, there's been things just kind of working against us and everyone on the team, you know, we all know the effort that we're putting in. We all know the pace and potential that we have and sure everybody's a little bit frustrated at the same time, but we're all in the same mindset that at some point things have to change. You know, you can only be you can only be unlucky for so long before, you know, it turns around. And as you say, we're not even looking for good luck. We're just looking for no bad luck. And, uh, and hopefully it's a big, uh, a big stepping point for us. So we're, we're focused on our job. I think, uh, like I said, everyone's been doing their job and it's been a step forward. Yeah. Even over last year where by this point of the season on paper, the results looks better. Uh, I think our pace and performance and consistency has actually been stronger this year. We just, we just really haven't had the racing luck and that's, that's part of it. Unfortunately. Jen is next in this trio of questions and gets a little more uh, detailed. She says, Hinch, when you do hit a rough patch as a team, are there specific things you or the team use to help get through it? That's a great question. Um, thanks for submitting it. I think, I think what the team does is, is, is lean on each other. You know, we're all competitors. That's the thing. There may only be one guy behind the wheel of the car, but if you think that every, every person involved and that race team isn't just as competitive as I am, you'd be mistaken. Um, the engineers, the mechanics, the people back at the shop, the commercial department, it doesn't matter. You know, we really are uh, a team that's in this to win together. And it's, and it's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to get despondent when you have a, you know, a streak of bad luck like this. But I think we take a lot of, uh, a lot of solace in the fact that the pace is good. Uh, the hardest thing to do in IndyCar is be fast. Um, and, and we've managed to do that, uh, more consistently than I think it looks like. And so I think we just lean on each other. And if someone looks like they're having a rough COVID or a bad day or, or dwelling on something, you know, we just, we think back to what we've done and, and uh, and the things we've done right and, and the things we can control ultimately, uh, and help each other get through it. And that's, uh, again, like I said, it's a team. This is what we do. We win together, we lose together and, uh, and we're just going to keep pushing each other until it comes good. So I mentioned we had three questions on this theme. The first two were nice. The third one, I'll let you be the judge. This comes in from BD. <laughs> Hinch has been sloppy at best this season. What's the level of concern over losing the ride? Is he the one bringing the arrow money to the team? Respond. <laughs> Respond. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm certainly not uh, the one bringing the arrow money to the team. Um as, as far as the rest of the question, uh, not not terribly uh, at the moment, if I'm honest. 
because of all the all the things I just mentioned, you know, I think if you uh, if you talk to the members of the team, whether it's uh, you know the mechanics, engineers, owners, whatever, I think everybody is is very happy with the the effort that we're putting forward across the board. Um, the results have been sloppy, to use uh, <laughs> use your verbiage, but. Uh, I think I think the pace has been good. I think the effort on race days, especially, has been good. There's no doubt we've had some problems in qualifying this year. There's some outright pace that I think we still need to find on Saturdays, but uh, on Sundays, you know, it's been good execution, good race cars, and um, it, it, it has been a, a decent amount of bad luck. So we're going to keep our heads down, and I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to keep doing my job, and until somebody at the team tells me I'm not doing it well, uh, there's no reason to change anything that I'm doing. Hashtag sloppy hinch. <laughs> <laughs> very, very tasty meal. Oh, uh, much the, healthier than a sloppy joe. That's the best. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal Ryan Terpstra says, well, can you continue being awesome? Thanks for promoting and supporting uh, the GoFundMe thing with my wife and I. He says, joking aside, if race results were awarded based on being good with fans, sponsors, teammates, etc., I think the competition in IndyCar would probably be as fierce as it is on track. It says, thank you for being part of an awesome group of drivers, heavily engaged in all the different facets of things. And he says, for a more serious question, how have you found the aero package for Indy in Texas? Can you race or is the aero wake really hindering faster cars? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for the, uh, for the sentiment. That's, that's kind. We all try very hard to uh, represent our sport well and, you know, we, each and every one of us appreciate that if it wasn't for the fans, we wouldn't get to do what we get to do 17 times a year. So, uh, so thank you. Um, yeah, as far as Euro could go on the speedways, I think, uh, I think we've got to call a spade a spade. You know, it, it hasn't been, um, potentially as racy as, as the previous one, uh, which is, you know, it's obviously not something we were aiming for and something that the series is actively trying to make better. You know, there were adjustments for, uh, or 2019 over 2018. And I think both Indianapolis and Texas were better races uh, than the previous years. Are they where we want them to be yet? No, I don't think so. I don't think anybody in the series would say that. Uh, but, you know, the series is very conscious of that and, and are definitely open to making changes as they did over this offseason. And we'll, uh, we'll look at what we've learned at, at those places and what we learned at Pocono and and potentially make some some other adjustments for uh, for 2020. But um, yeah, so it's a work in progress. I think the races are still very good, but I think uh, I think certainly we can keep working and making it even better for the fans. Going to get to a very important question here sent by Travis Bender, James. I recently moved to Ohio from from Indiana. When will I be able to get Hinchtown Hammer down here? <laughs> that. <laughs> That's a great question, uh, and I'm I'm not sure of the answer. That one that was a little bit out of my control at the moment. Um, you might just have to come back and you know visit the family a couple times a year and stock up. I believe there is a personal James Hinchcliffe delivery. It's kind of like Uber Eats, but it's Hinch Eats. So I'm not sure, Travis, if we can get Hinch to drive over to Ohio and do a personal delivery might be a little inner state line alcohol distribution it's, uh, it's, law. It's, 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 it's drink. <laughs> there we go. I like it. Uber Eats, it's Hinch drink. Yeah. Or drones. Maybe Hinch drones. Maybe. Uh, anyways, I'm, I'm creating more problems for you here. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to 
the mayor of moose town look at this more royalty connecting with royalty uh the mayor tony moss says which is more physically or mentally demanding driving in extreme heat either indy or texas etc or in the rain like we had at detroit or barber and he also asks if you could quote bitch slap someone like uh aj foyt did to ari at texas 20 plus years ago who would it be <laughs> don't you love it when you get two awesome questions that are just there's no linkage at all I like yeah, I like the the, the subtle follow up question. Uh, uh, okay, so question one, which is more challenging? I would say that ultimately, um, driving in extreme heat is probably a little bit tougher. Uh, driving in the rain is obviously incredibly mentally taxing. But honestly, whether you're in the rain or in the dry, you're driving an IndyCar car at the limit at all times. And so, whether that limit is a little bit lower and you know consequences potentially a little higher in the low grip situations of being in the rain or, you know, um, higher speeds, um, but maybe a little more forgiving in the dry, you're, you're always on the limit. And so the, the mental taxation required for that is the same. So the reason I picked the heat is because you still have to do all that and you're still just as mentally taxed while also now battling you know, a physical element uh, with, with the heat. Dehydration is a big concern. Obviously, your reaction time slows down, your brain slows down, your muscles can cramp up. Uh, so we have to take that side of it very seriously. Um, Texas is a very hot race. Indy's been that in the past. St. Pete, the last couple of seasons has been, or this year was brutal with the heat and the humidity. And, you know, you're in between concrete walls on a, on a temporary circuit. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the biggest challenges. So, yeah, I think uh, from both the physical and, uh, and mental side, because once your body starts, you know, going, you know, the mind's worried about the body and not just about driving fast. So it, uh, it's kind of double taxing. Should as also, as far as the second question, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I should say, you know, I don't know whether heat or cold might lead you to the old, uh, bee slapping of folks here, but, uh, maybe there's a segue. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the, the, the problem is you referenced a very specific incident and in that specific incident, AJ was wrong. So, oh, so that actually opens up a great door for you. So if you were just wildly wrong about something, which kind of means anybody, you could hit anybody because you're off base. I mean, and why isn't your answer Connor Daly? Uh, no, come on. You can't hit Connor. Some Dude, sense would nice. fall into his head. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Uh, well, no, remember, he also carries around needles. So uh, I wouldn't want him to be able to fight back, have he's a reason a, to fight back. He's you know? a sturdy little, again, I, I'm, I'm saying this in jest because I wouldn't want to get tackled by that guy. I'm not sure I could defend myself properly. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't want to fight him. Uh, I don't want to slap anybody, man. I'm Canadian. This, this isn't a political answer. This is a cultural answer. Oh, <laughs> he's making IndyCar great again. Uh, let's go to Jordan Darwin. <laughs> and here, we need to say thanks to you and the great contribution you made to the dinner with racers video announcing their new e-racing league um yeah what what our boy sean heckman came up with and had you do in that little video was just all kinds of fun so it was funny it's uh it's related to jordan darwin's question saying hinch how stressful is bump date the indy 500 and then compare and contrast the last two years you know it's that's actually an interesting that's an interesting question because 
um, the formats were very different in the last two years. And so unfortunately, we were involved in both of them. And uh, the simple answer is 2019 was, was far more stressful. And the reason mainly being, you know, 2018, honestly, we thought we were going to get a run and we thought we were going to be fine. So we weren't really that concerned. Uh, obviously, that didn't work out for us. And heading into 2019, I think regardless of where we thought we were going into the weekend, we were going to be a little bit more on edge, just knowing that even if you think you're comfortable, weird things can happen. And, uh, you know, you could potentially find yourself in a precarious situation. And uh, again, unfortunately, that's exactly where we found ourselves. And we had a whole night to sit and dwell on it. And then we had to go back and do it again and hope that it was enough and sit there and watch other guys run after us and potentially knock us out of the race. So, you know, obviously the, the heartbreak attached to 2018 is going to be tough to, tough to match, but the, uh, the, the stress level and anxiety in 2019 was definitely higher for the whole organization, I think. Yeah. I don't know if folks fully understand how nasty it is when you are in a situation where there's one weekend of qualifying and the one big day you want to get in and relieve that pressure it doesn't go according to plan, and then you get to not sleep all night long, and everyone comes in Sunday really hoping that their worst fears aren't realized. So, yeah, not fun, yeah. but also kind of sort of what makes Indy really special. Uh, let's see. Here's, sure. here's one from Fleetwood Marky Moose. I love names on social media. It says, could you talk a little bit about sponsor events that you attend? Uh, these are driver responsibilities that we know of, but don't know much about, uh, such as who's there, what are the goals of the events, how many of these do you do a week, and how long are they? So let's talk about that, because if we're looking at scheduling, hey, you just finished Texas, finally got this break, everyone has a break after just a total grind, you're not exactly calling in from Saint-Tropez, kicking up your feet. There's still obligations, even when you have, quote, downtime, but Tell us about how this fills in your calendar between races, heck, even during races. Well, yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's a great question. It is a very, very good question because I think our commitment to, uh, to sponsors and, and the things we have to do outside of the car are pretty unique in the world of professional athletes. Not a lot of others have quite the same responsibilities as you. Um, but the, 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 the short answer is there's no short answer because, Every partner is different. Every relationship with that, with a race team and a, and a company, uh, comes with its own set of goals, uh, that's unique to that, to that group. But to sort of paint a broader picture of it, um, you know, a, a sponsor appearance at a racetrack or like during the race weekend is usually a, a 15 to 30 minute, um, appearance. Usually it'll be up in like a, a hospitality suite if they have one, or like in the case of Arrow, we have Club Five, our own hospitality unit that comes to all the races. Um, it's generally a Q and A. There'll be photo opportunities with the guests and the clients and the customers, whoever's there, autographs, things like that. And those ones are pretty easy, quick, you know, quick and dirty, in and out. Um, just giving the the people there the full experience, getting some time to uh, to meet uh, meet with and hear from the drivers of the team. Away from the racetrack, you know, in a, in a block like this, there might be uh, something that comes up. And it's, it's honestly very, very specific for the companies. Um, a lot of them are office visits, sort of an employee appreciation thing. You'll go out to uh, the headquarters of a given company, maybe get a tour of a facility if they 
manufacture something or, you know, something like that. Bring your hinge um, to work day. I like the sound of that. Exactly right. Bring your hinge to work day. It's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, we have a partner, Cypress, and uh, they manufacture, uh, you know, microchips and semiconductors and all these crazy things that are in all the electronic gizmos that you use on a daily basis. And I got a tour of one of their fa- fabrication shops, and it's just the most outrageous, like, out of a sci-fi movie facility I've ever seen in my life. Um, so I, you know, I actually benefit too. I get to learn a lot about something I didn't know about, about something our partners do. Um, but again, it's, you know, it's usually a Q and a then with some of the employees being creates. Um, we do a lot of, uh, you know, dinners and things like that with, uh, with sponsors. Um, so it, it really does depend. There's a, there's a wide variety of things. I mean, if you're at Connor Daly, you get to go up in F-16s and stuff. It just depends on who your partners are. Yeah, well, hey, at least you got to go around on a Ferris wheel. That's close, but but we're going to work on <laughs> the big old jets for you. Uh, our friend Kevin Frederico says, is there any series or one-off event you really want to try and win? I mean, I, I love to do Le Mans. I've, uh, I've obviously done the Daytona 24 uh, a bunch of times now, and um, it's it's just a race that, you know, the, the history behind it, you know, the, just everything about that race. And everybody that's been, I, I'm not even been a spectator. And, um, everybody just comes back with that same sort of, uh, <clears throat> same sort of feeling afterwards. And, uh, I would love to kind of knock that one off the list. Alex has been trying hard to talk me into the Baja stuff. So, uh, I'm less sold on that as of right now. It's maybe a second place after Lamar, but, uh, that's certainly, uh, certainly one I want to try at some point. When? I don't know. That's, that's a tougher question to answer. So what you're saying is you're a guy who wants functioning kidneys and spine. Therefore, you're a little tentative on the Baja. I'm less, less convinced. Yeah, I've, I've already had some neck problems. I've already crashed a couple things and hurt my neck. I don't need to make it any worse in my old age. You'd also need to top things a bit because Rossi has the eternal <laughs> uh, hitting an SUV while flying through the air thing i mean i don't know what you would do to top that but yeah he's already kind of set the bar a little high yeah he's kind of already like a celebrity in that uh, in that world <laughs> what he did. and the best part was he didn't even know he hit the car that's the best part uh, he, but he left a left a little note sorry here's my insurance info please call me afterwards yeah. once he found out <laughs> um all right let's ramp down to the last uh, handful of questions here we're going to throw in one that's vaguely serious uh, actually i think it might have been sent in for me but i would love to get your take on this this is from matthew lewis who says what's happened with indycar and the problems on pit lane lately seems like many more team members and safety issues this year than i can remember uh, is there anything that comes to mind as causing it, or is there anything that might need to be done to prevent some of them? Now, obviously, Takuma's high-speed incident last weekend during the race was, I don't know if you had a chance to see the replays, but that was scary. Thankfully, all turned out okay there, but uh, wind back to Indianapolis and such. Uh, Will Power getting shipped at Detroit with three of the four wheels attached. does seem like there's a cluster here of pit lane not fun, should we draw any conclusions as to reasons why, or is it just a bunch of random stuff, do you think, James, hitting at the same time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's again, a, a great observation, but no, I, I really don't think there's a connection to anything. You know, there's there's nothing that's changed. There's nothing different in the cars. There's nothing particularly you know, that's made one element of, of performing a pit stop more difficult than it's been in the past. I, I really just think it's bad luck. 
you know, obviously we had a couple in the 500. That's generally expected in a sense because you have, you know, a bunch of drivers that aren't running all year, a bunch of crews that aren't crewing all year. You have more people in pit lane than you have at any other event. Statistically speaking, it is more likely that something will go wrong. Uh, and obviously we saw that a couple times this year. And again, um, <clears throat> glad it was nothing more serious. But I think, I think uh, what we've seen is pure coincidence and just everybody trying to, you know, maximize every tenth of a second in every element of the sport because the series is just so competitive now. Pit sequence is, you know, as big a determining factor on the outcome of the race as, as anything else. And I think everybody, crews included, are just trying to literally shave every tenth of a second they can off and like driving on the racetrack when you're trying to find an extra tenth. Occasionally you get it wrong and, and there are, you know, there are consequences for that. Andrew Bauer, very, very important question here. Hinch, will you be personally, compared to impersonally, will you be personally introducing Marcus Erickson to the double bratwurst sandwich at Road America uh, when, we, <laughs> when we get there a weekend after next? Uh, if there's one thing you know, I've learned about Marcus is that he's very much embracing the, uh, the culture of, of U.S. food. He's willing to try anything. So um, I, imagine, I imagine he'll make his way to one of the famous brat stands. I don't know if it'll be me personally that introduces him, but I wouldn't hate to see his face when he tries it. Jerry Siddhoff says, Hinch, I've always wanted to ask if you have ever met Toronto area native slash baseball player extraordinaire Joey Votto. And I actually have no idea who that is. You don't know who Joey Votto is? I don't. Um, well, that's all right. That's all I'll forgive you. Uh, the, the short answer is no, but in a, in a crazy world of six degrees of separation, my dad actually knows Joey Votto's mom. Um, no questions? No, I'm not asking any follow-up questions here. <laughs> no. Jared no, no, Bear? So, um, Joey, Joey Votto's mom, uh, Mrs. Votto, I, I suppose, I assume, um, is, a, is a sommelier at a, at a very nice restaurant that when my dad was in the working world and frequented power lunching, um, they got to know one another and then, you know, both their kids, they would, you know, brag about their children's respective uh, burgeoning careers. And as I was making my way up to IndyCar, he was making his way up into the majors. So we've kind of been on a similar timeline uh, in our respective sports. Haven't crossed paths, but uh, yeah, six degrees of separation kind of know. I love it. Uh, Jack Homan, two questions for you. One very, very important. I'll let you choose which one is the most important. He says, Mayor, can you fix my parking ticket? And also says, how has Arrow helped your team on the technical side? Well, the answer to the first question uh, is simply no, because it's not in my jurisdiction, because we don't give parking tickets in Hinchtown. Mm. Um, and secondly, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is kind of a funny response, I think. Um, I can't tell you that. Um, not because I don't want to, but because Arrow is, Arrow is an incredible partner in a lot of ways, and they have minds and resources like you wouldn't believe. And we've identified some areas that we think they have an expertise that could greatly benefit our team. Um, but frankly, we don't want anyone else to know that, uh, specifically what they're doing for us, because we don't want anyone else cluing in that there might be someone out there that can help them. Hinchcliffe so, says uh, Arrow doing a horrible job to help the team. Just wanted to clarify that little not, uh, hashtag breaking. No, I'm saying they're uh, doing oh, such a good job. Sorry. I can't even tell you about it oh, without getting in trouble. Misunderstood. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but, and that, but that is cool. And again, you know, it's not as if you guys want to mention all the ways that they're doing things. But when an, an IndyCar team or any team has a technical partner that can indeed help in some way, shape, or form, there's usually some pretty cool ways of lift. I mean, a uh, seven-post shaker rig, that's not in Arrow's expertise, but are, you know, I'm just making up random things, but are there processes, ways of uh, analyzing what is coming off of that that hadn't maybe been addressed before or just yeah. different sets of eyes saying, ah, that's the right, practice right. you do. So, hmm. Right. So that's, that, that's actually a good one. That's probably one that's not, you know, not, uh, not too sensitive to mention is just, you know, the amount of data that we accumulate during a race weekend is enormous. And we only have so many minds and so many hours um, in which to, to analyze process and, and make decisions based off it. And so, you know, one of the things we're actively looking at as a team is how to be more efficient in that process. And, uh, and certainly that's an area that, uh, Aero and other partners of ours have been, uh, have been very helpful in, in trying to develop, you know, new, new, new protocols for, and, um, and, and I think it's going to help the team a, a great amount for sure. All right. We are down to our last two questions. This comes in from Maggie at the all caps, the Maggie Warren for James. How hard was it? Or what was it like going from 32nd to 11th at Indy? She says, Awesome drive, by the way, with two exclamation points, not one, but two. Uh, and Maggie also asks, what are you looking forward to the most as we move into the second half of the season? Um, it was a lot of fun, Maggie. That's, that's the short answer. Um, you know, obviously that was not where we wanted to start, but it set us up for what was a very, uh, very busy and entertaining day. Uh, and, you know, it's based on, uh, based on the race last year, I wasn't sure you know, how racy we're going to get and, and how much progress we're going to be able to make. And so I think as a team, we're pretty thrilled that uh, we were able to make up the spots that we did and get some, some good legit pa- passes on track. And, uh, and it was great. So it was, like I said, would have liked to have started and finished a little bit further up, but all things considered, we were pretty pleased. What about the second anyway, half of the your- season? Because that's the thing where, I mean, I've missed the last four races and I'm still exhausted. And it, it just feels like we've done a full season by early June. And so, yeah, anyways, I can't even imagine you who's been even busier. But what are you looking forward to uh, the second half? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the highlight of the second half is obviously going to be Toronto. Um, you know, the sort, of, the sort of big hitters in the season are the first race, uh, Long Beach, the month of May, Toronto, the last race, you know, you, you kind of have these milestones throughout the season. Um, and obviously we've, we've knocked off a couple of those ones already. And so for me, Toronto is the next, the next big one. Uh, really excited to get home and, and put on a good show for, uh, for everybody at home. All right. We are going to close the show with a question from Ed Berg, who says, what is the one thing that other drivers do on the racetrack that might be legal but drives you crazy anyways. Gapping. The gapping in practice and qualifying is infuriating. For a group of quote-unquote professionals, (laughs) we're the most useless set of, of, of people at successfully and efficiently gapping. And some drivers think they need 14 seconds of clear track in front of them to get a lap time done. And it's 
the the lack of consideration and the it's just it's brutal. It's uh, there. Are, go ask any member of my team what's the one thing I complain about the most. It's not it's not going to be anything to do with the car. It's not going to be anything to do with anything like that. It's going to be the gapping in practice and qualifying, and it's 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 the worst. I don't know how I don't know how we, we can be. I don't think you could try to be this bad at it and do a better job. Going to have to do a little callback here, just an idea, and we're probably going to have to have our friends at Toronto Motorsports and Roger War come up with it. But I know you said that there are no tickets in Hinchtown, but I'm thinking we might need to come up with a pad of tickets for you to hand out for exceptionally poor gapping practices to fill out and hand out to drivers on pit lane. I would run out. I would run out at the first race. <laughs> ah brother thank you as always for taking some time and uh again thank you so much for your generosity and kindness and i don't know when i'm going to get to see you at a motor race next but hopefully it's soon and uh got a big hug for you and thanks as always Whew. well having just watched a rather unsightly finish to the warriors and raptors game uh, following the conversation you might have just heard with the uh, the mayor, uh, looks like my um, blood leaking experiment payback is staved off for at least another game. So we'll see what happens. And don't tell him, but even if the Warriors win, I'm still going to do it because, you know, I can't be a chicken my whole life when it comes to that. I'm not afraid of needles, though. That's the thing. Needles I'm all good with. Just the, uh, yeah. That last time I gave blood, uh, it wasn't pretty. Um, all right. So y'all sent in a bunch of great questions for me. And although it's almost nine o'clock, I'm going to do my best to rock and roll through them as quickly as I can. I've saved a couple of kind of opiniony, insidery things for the end of the conversation here. That being on the Dixon and Herda incident. And that's because I have heard, uh, fair number of interesting things from folks who competed in the race. And I don't mean competed like crew members. I mean, drivers on the racetrack uh, there and also Indy that I'm going to share with you. And I'm actually going to include this in a little uh, mid season driver thoughts and analysis piece as well. So uh, this will be both in print and then also just in a looser format at the end. And then I'm also going to try and share a little bit of additional Things that I have heard, but also heard from impeccable, truly impeccable sources on some of the funding stuff uh, as related to Harding Steinbrenner Racing. So I'll close the show with that, but we're going to kick off your questions. And as you've heard me say a couple times already, and I say every week because you guys give me awesome reasons too, I love some of the screen names folks come up with on social media. So we're kicking off with Tub Sremmerd, which if we read that backwards, it's butt drummers so you just win and with a a twitter handle of at microsoft paint which i mean you might have just won the internet forever for that combination uh for mp why is the post race and in stars especially podiums generally not covered in broadcast in the u.s unless there happens to be time in the broadcast window does anyone on youtube cover it informally or what other options could there be for u.s viewers to take part Interesting question, and sounds like it's not limited to IndyCar. Yeah, I would say you have absolutely nailed it with the broadcast window. 
if by chance a race has very few yellows, is not really stretched lengthwise to the very end of the broadcast, I think we tend to see a little bit more celebration-y type stuff. We also don't really have a standard format in terms of podiums and podium areas. I guess you could say the uh, uh, the impound area, Park Ferme, where we automatically have all three cars at every round go to the same spot and then rush to the podium and have all kinds of fun first. Uh, there tends to be, we even see this in Formula One, where the first interviews with the podium finishers took place on the podium itself. They've now moved that forward so that it happens often right after they get out of the car, a little something downstairs before they run upstairs. So at least here, knowing how the broadcast window is almighty and very tight, yeah, it's not a surprise that the general format has been, hey, we're going to go to the winner in victory lane ASAP and then cut straight back to pit lane and grab second third however many folks generally top five or so again it's not 100 percent hard and fast rule but that just tends to be the thing hey let's get those interviews in knowing that if we're talking real time crunch in theory if you've come to the race for the day you can wait a couple extra minutes to see all three drivers on the podium let's go to steve straub hey steve says any explanation for sato's pit lane incident was there a mechanical issue or just a case of coming in too hot we did see that Takuma continued afterwards, so no mechanical malady that I know of or have heard of. Just appeared like he was flying, man. Um, just flying. I Now, this would be mechanical. I don't know if there was a case of somehow um, deactivating the pit lane speed limiter too soon. Not as if you would really need to deactivate that early when you're coming into the box, but was it a case of that happening and the car speeding up a little bit? I don't know. Uh, it, it looked like he was carrying the speed for a pit stall that was at least two ahead of his own. So although it didn't look too much like he missed judged where his pit stall was, just the amount of speed he was carrying was very surprising. And I don't know if you happen to then follow this track, this Steve in subsequent pit stops, but I saw that Graham Rahal, for example, looks like he came into his box. That might have been the next stop when the cameras caught it or the one after. But I almost wondered if he had slowed down too much too soon and rolled in and gave up just a time, you know, a little bit of time just to make sure that he was slowed down enough. It's not as if he was there to see everything that played out with Sato, knew all the reasons and then adjusted to it. But some of the other drivers you could see were obviously not trying to give up any time but not wanting to push the edge so far that they risked a mistake. With Takuma's, it was just so not even close. I mean, this wasn't like, oh, just misjudged it a little bit. It was, holy cow. Um, and I don't say this to be flippant, but when your pit crew are looking like human bowling pins, that's, yeah. So this, I'm so thankful. There was nothing nasty here. And having worked in IndyCar before helmets were mandatory or even common, uh, I remember Steve Freed, who, F-R-I-E-D, who at the Indy 500 was run over by his driver, exiting, physically ran over his head with the left rear wheel, which just did all kinds of damage. He was in the worst possible way. And 
have seen some of these instances just in my own time working in IndyCar, being on pit lane with whatever team. So even today, yeah, um, very scary. Just looked like, honestly, he got it extremely wrong. And we try to be as honest as we can here. I was feeling so awesome for Takuma coming into the race. I think many people were wrote a story about I've you're driving better than ever. And the thing that makes these comments come forth is there's been throughout his IndyCar career, at least it's been part of his other racing and other series too, but he has had that just weird wonky doggle bite you type thing out of nowhere. Happy, you know, just curled up on your lap. Everything's as good as can be. And you're going, oh, this is the best. And then you feel that chomp on your hand and you go, where did that come from? That's been the Takuma Sato story. Running well, out of nowhere and for no particular reason, some sort of brain fade incident ruins his day. That's the thing that's been gone and gone for quite a while. Not saying he's made zero mistakes in the last year or whatever, but it's just been turned down to such a level that it's been hard not to be happy for the guy and then of course when i write the story saying but it's the best ever and my man robin miller saying the same thing in one of the pre-race interviews and you know the whole time you file that story and again i'm not this isn't any personal thing it's just in the back of my head it's always like Man, I sure I hope I don't hope I don't get burned on this. I'm going to file it regardless, but oh, and here we go. And we're, we're mowing down people on pit lane and you're leading the race easily. And now you're multiple laps down. So I hope, obviously, A, I hope we don't see it again. So thankful that uh, the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan pit crew member and members are okay, uh, other than a highly bent and folded uh, stop board uh, stop sign. Um, yeah. I just also really hope this is the last time we see this this year, because if this thing keeps cropping up, then indeed this late career change uh, that has put that kind of weird, going to bite you out of nowhere thing that we thought was away. I just sure hope it doesn't come back because that'd be really sad for him. Let's go to Mike Kristoff, who says, Marshall, the last few years at Road America has been a bit processional. The racing has been good everywhere this season. Do you think we'll see more passing this year at my favorite track on the planet? Uh, I I can't make any comment on your approach or your assessment of what Road America's off for the last couple of years, Mike. I know I don't recall thinking that or feeling that. Seemed like a lot of really hard racing, uh, some good strategy as well. But at the same time, uh, maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. But I do know that today it seems like there's an expectation for lots of passing and constant passing and just a blowout a good old dominant butt kicking which was kind of something that we saw more often than not during the 80s and 90s at many tracks um i'm okay with those now if that's every race yeah we'll probably say all right guys we need to fix something but if by chance pick whichever your favorite driver is happens to be the one that walks away i don't think that's the worst thing in the world if there's hopefully still some second place third place fourth place action going on if it's something where seemingly nobody can pass and there's no action then yeah that would be an issue but yeah i you know knowing how the season has played out 
place like Elkhart, where you know big top-end power can certainly be very friendly when it comes to success. Right now, that sounds a heck of a lot like Chevy sweet spot, and among the Chevys, Team Penske happens to fill that sweet spot. So at least going in, I'd be very surprised if we weren't talking about a Power New Garden or Pagano win. If that's the case, then it is what it is, as our friend Juan Montoya likes to say. Uh, Steve at 3D Steve says there was an IndyCar promo on the side-by-side NBCSN broadcast. And James Hinchcliffe was saying, I shouldn't be in control of this at the exact same time as he was spinning out of the race live. Meaningless coincidence or jinx? Oh, was definite jinx. Yes. I'm a firm believer, Steve, that despite spending a rumored $11 million a year on the Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports team by Aero and uh, combined sponsors, all the time spent developing the car, all the engineering, all the wind tunnel, CFD, simulation, driver-in-the-loop stuff, everything possible, training and fitness, and you name it, all the things that go into trying to win a race, I am a definite believer that an ill-timed commercial could absolutely ruin a guy's day. So uh, I would just, yeah. So what that means, friends, if there's a driver you don't like, you need to take up a collection to run a really negative commercial to get them knocked out of the race whenever you feel is the right timing. So a little bit of insider info there I can share with you. Let's go to Mike Markham, who says, what would you recommend for someone looking to break into racing and PR or marketing, possibly. I have a media and live events background. Awesome question, Mike. Fortunately, unfortunately, I can't speak to the exact nature of what you want to do because, although I, well, I shouldn't lie. Uh, not as if I was going to lie. I shouldn't say that completely. I have done PR for teams, not in IndyCar, in sports car, more in the lower rungs and more on the down low, just as an additional job to do writing uh press releases and such haven't done that for uh, a number of years now but regardless i've done that did have to do a little bit of guerrilla marketing back when i was team managering ish type stuff in uh, some of the smaller indycar teams that i worked with but really i would say when it comes to public relations or marketing knowing you've sent this in to our indycar show my best suggestion would be to do the really basic, basic thing of send some of the team's PR reps some inquiries. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, hi, I'd like to have your job. Uh, yeah, that might not be the way of publicly relating, but not sure how old you are. Obviously don't know your background experience-wise, but offering to intern, asking if there are things among within your expertise that could be of value, um, I would not hesitate from doing something as simple and as direct as that big resumes saying I've done these things and here's my uh, sizzle reel and here's those are all great. But ultimately what folks would be looking for in either department is how can you help me with my immediate need? Not how awesome are you and show me the big showy things you've done for others. So if this is indeed something that you want to do for a living, in most instances, IndyCar teams and the junior formula teams on the road to Indy presented by Cooper Tires, 
they have direct employees. They hire someone and they do the work for them. In some instances, there are a few houses, a few public relation houses. Uh, our super good friend of the show and just good personal friend, that being the man from Norway, Anders Krohn. Uh, he and Johnny Baker co-own the CoForce uh, outfit and they subcontract. They hire themselves out to do PR for teams, for series, you name it. Uh, there's a lot of good folks from CoForce working in the IndyCar slash open wheel paddock doing a variety of things for a variety of entities. And again, not knowing your full background, Mike, uh, you could reach out to someone like them. Uh, the Sunday group, Sunday management group, that's owned by another friend, Matt Cleary. Uh, they look after the Shank team and Jack Harvey and do a few other things with a few other racing series as their official agency. So again, in some directions, you're looking at, hi, how can I help, knowing that you are the direct employee of a team here, and uh, I'm not trying to replace you. I'm wanting to know how I can complement or help would be the direction. And in some others, it would be, hey, I see that you're a team uh, of PR reps and marketing experts. Is there something that I can do for you for one of your clients? Those would be the two routes that come to mind. And social media is a really, really effective way of connecting instantly with folks, um, something in terms of a direct message or just a straight up tweet, uh, something on Facebook or otherwise um, might not be a bad way of making sure that there is a connection there instead of just a, a random email sent in to some generic contact page. Let's go back to our man, Steve Straub, who says he was listening to Colton Herta's in-car audio during Texas and the strategist kept telling him to relax his arms on the straight was he having physical issues, or were they trying to prevent scrubbing speed on the straightaway? I don't know, Steve, because I didn't hear that, uh, and I just honestly have not had time to chase down minutiae like this. Can tell you, though, that constantly encouraging drivers at a place like Texas, where you are constantly turning, it is just on and on. And it's nonstop. The only break you get is during pit stops and yellow flag but like we had saturday night where there was not a ton of yellow uh, we saw alexander rossi you might have seen late in the race from an in-car shot he had basically his thumbs kind of sort of hooked into the steering wheel during a yellow and it was just raising his fingers trying to stretch his hands because i think i don't know if i want to say they're cramping up but um, something where you can certainly have a situation where muscles are just kind of pumping up and or really starting to wane so just reminding drivers hey don't tense up as much relax it's not uncommon to hear something like that at a texas where you're just always working hard let's go to jeremy wills he says do the drivers think texas will be an even better race next year keep hearing this theory that the racing service in texas is improving as it ages if all else holds similar to next year regarding tire and arrow joseph newgarden touched on this a bit jeremy and I'll add just one other point that I heard from a couple of folks after the race. That was a hope that next year there would be more downforce added. I know that downforce is often regarded as the evilest of evils, especially when it comes to ovals, pack racing, etc. At least from those that I heard from, I did have to agree with what we saw. If we think of Alexander Rossi, for example, trying to go around the high side of Joseph Newgarden. Alexander spoke that the 
the second lane ne- never really came in with enough rubber to allow him to stick and stay there equal with Joseph the whole time had to give up uh, trying to make that fight going around the outside. The other other line of thinking that I've heard is, you know, with a little bit more downforce, not talking a ton, but just enough additional, might be able to not have to necessarily worry about is there a perfect amount of rubber being put down on the high line to make that happen, actually have a little bit of extra arrow help so that the guy just gluing himself to the bottom one who's just stuck to the white line all the way around is going to win, period, because there's not enough grip in terms of rubber being put down in that second lane. So at least from those that I've heard from that are pretty smart about this stuff, and on the technical side, it was, you know, if they were to add a little bit more downforce, I don't know what that number is, but add a little bit more downforce when we go back next year, if everything else is the same, might actually create a little bit more passing and a little bit more side-by-side fun. Let's go to Stitch Turner. Hey, Stitch, how are you, brother? Can we infer that Mullins' drastic increase in sponsorship during and since the Indy 500 is related to IndyCar's renewed interest in hybrids for the next motor? Like, is Mullen possibly positioning itself to be the supplier of a spec hybrid system? Mullen, for those of you who might have seen on the NBC and the NBCSN broadcasts, is a brand new uh, hybrid, no, actually, I apologize, not hybrid, uh, all-electric supercar manufacturer. Um, I would love it if that were the case, Stitch. I have heard nothing, nothing uh, to the effect of that being related at all. What I would think, it could be wrong, but what I think is Mullen trying to create awareness for a car that I did not know existed until they started promoting it during IndyCar races. Um, you know, knowing that this is NBC slash NBCSN's first full year as an advertiser for IndyCar, um, they might have been able to get some advertising rates that are a little bit more favorable since there isn't exactly a as a full benchmark to know in terms of delivery of ratings and such. So a little bit of a guess there, but that was the thing that came to mind of, huh, um, big presence during these IndyCar broadcasts by a company I hadn't really heard of. And, hmm, um, if they're able to do this, then this must be something they consider to be favorable in terms of where they want to drive awareness, but also there's probably a somewhat favorable financial aspect to it as well. Uh, Joe Izzo says, has Alexander Rossi matured in collecting points by finishing second and not pressing the Penske cars too hard, or does he just not want to upset his new boss starting next year? Thanks, Joe. I love this. Inferring that Rossi is already signed and headed to Roger Penske's team next year. Last thing that I heard very recently within the last week is that no decision has been made on where he will go in terms of signing anything or a personal decision. I believe that's an accurate thing that's been said that I've heard from someone who is pretty darn good at knowing these things. Would definitely say that in every instance where Rossi has finished second, whether it's to a Penske car or not, um, if he could have finished first, he would. And this is part of the... Uh, kind of halfway point driver thoughts and whatnot piece 
Rossi, I have not seen this level of frustration within him. Uh, just week in, week out, it coming out, but also him handling that in such an impressive way. Uh, you can see the frustration is just building him, uh, building within him, and building more and more. Yeah, um, that is not a child <laughs> that is geared to finish second and think, all right, well, that was good. That's going to help in the long run. He knows that it will understands that fully understands the Dario Franchitti, the Scott Dixons, the others who, when they won, when they could win, they won. And when they couldn't, they maximize their points. That's why they earned so many titles. Rossi gets that a hundred percent. There's still just nothing within him. That's going to go home and say, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. P three, P two. Woo. Absolute opposite. And I love that about the guy. So uh, but yeah, I do love your point about not wanting to uh, upset his new boss. I, I've said this before, said it a couple times. Robin said it as well. I really hope he stays at Andretti. I really hope that the big talent vacuum that is Team Penske does not hoover up yet another uh, top line driver, knowing that they have a couple on the books already who are certainly delivering for them. So uh, let's go to Lori Carter who says, why doesn't IndyCar race at Montreal? Is it money-related, or is the track not interested? Well, the awesome thing about where IndyCar races, Lori, is if someone is willing to pay them to be there, they turn up. Uh, Where they do not race, uh, it's a case of there not being a business reason to be there. So in terms of how IndyCar chooses where to race, they certainly explore a lot of options, have tracks reach out to them, Sometimes they might think, hey, going back to this track, like they did at Phoenix, that was an experiment, didn't work out, but that was an idea they had, uh, worked something up with the folks at what's now called ISM Raceway in Phoenix, and I don't know the money behind it, whether it was a rev share or co-promotion share, however they worked it up, but essentially IndyCar doesn't just go to a place for fun. Uh, it usually tends to start out with a track saying, hey, uh, if we were to have you here, what would it cost? Uh, what's the sanction fee? Um, is this a place where you think you could actually take root, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I don't know if it's a case of the Montreal, the Circuit Gilles Villeneuve not being interested in IndyCar. There's obviously the, the ongoing belief that there's a, a Formula One block, that there's some sort of, contractual things stating that there can be no opposition to what they do there from a similar open wheel series. We hear that all the time about Coda. Obviously IndyCar just raced at Coda. Um, I, I would have to believe that if there was money to put behind this, a Canadian, a second Canadian race, this being in uh, French Canada, I have to believe it'd be fairly popular because other ones, Montremblant, etc., um, have been pretty darn good in the past. And obviously, if we talk just Champ Car as well, Champ Car has a history at uh, the Montreal Circuit too. So I'd love, I haven't been there since I think 2000, engineering uh, Atlantic, I think two Atlantic cars. So yeah, it's been a long time since I've been there, but absolutely loved it. So yeah, Lori, I, I, I hope someone makes it happen. Uh, let's go to Jonathan at F1 Freak 224. 
Any updates on new manufacturers coming in? Are the new rules being pushed back a year? Seems like we get this one on almost a weekly basis, so I uh, apologize for ripping through this one quickly, Jonathan, but no and no. Uh, with IndyCar's new engine formula set to debut in 2021, we are kind of coming up, as I mentioned last week, on a window here that if someone's going to come on board, we they don't want to wait too many more months before officially deciding to do so. So we're in the kind of the sweet spot here from call it June to September ish, October at most. Uh, if someone's going to come in in 21, they're going to want to make that decision, sign off on it. And off we go. Uh, rules being pushed back a year. There was a consideration of doing that. I know that uh, when it looked like Porsche might be coming in, there was a very real chance that I've heard of the rules being pushed back to 2022 to align with Porsche's internal racing calendar. But since that, at least to my knowledge, is no longer on the plate with Porsche uh, 2021, I do believe is still a go. Another final thing here, which I don't think I mentioned last week, terms of calendars as well, the financial calendars in the U.S. here, uh, for most companies, we are talking a September-ish uh, fiscal year turnover. So if we're talking about submitting budgets and getting them approved for the following year, because that's what would need to happen in order to get the budget to develop an engine, spend the year and, and whatnot, testing it and getting it ready for 21, those things would need to be formulated and submitted and signed off on before we get to really the end of summer outside the U S that changes, you know, Japan is on a very different financial calendar, annual calendar than, other countries, Europe, you name it. So, uh, yeah, timing-wise, though, we're not really in a position anymore where manufacturers can wait till the end of 2019 and say, ah, should we, shouldn't we? They'd be way behind, way behind if they were to do that. Uh, let's see, Anthony Ghosh, back to the Rossi topic. Is it too early to start handicapping? What seat Rossi is in next year? I'm not good at handicapping, Anthony, but, yeah, again, I do, do really hope we were talking about him staying at Andretti Autosport. What he and Jeremy Millis are doing and have been doing, uh, this is just looking like a truly epic partnership between driver and engineer. And so if Michael can lock in the money in terms of sponsorship to show Alexander that, hey, we got you covered for many years to come, sign this multi-year contract, two, three years, We've got it here. You've got it. Everything. We're just going to keep building and building. Uh, I just have to believe that would be really hard to overlook. Also have mentioned on past shows that Jeremy, who I love, truly love, uh, Jeremy worked for Penske in the past, and it was not positive. Uh, They left on not super happy terms. And so there's effectively no way anyone can think of Jeremy himself can think of how he would be welcomed back there if there was ever a reason to be welcomed back there. Uh, let's see, where should we go next? All right, Stephen Straub, you're just killing it this week. I believe this is your third question, and I appreciate that. Thank you for coming up with a bunch of great stuff. Also have Chris D'Amato, who has asked something very similar. Uh, Steve says, both Tony Kanon and A.J. Foyt pledged before the Texas race to right the ship with respect to Foyt's performance. In your estimation, what is needed for them to improve? Chris D'Amato says, with all the talk about Foyt racing, doing an overhaul, does it include new drivers, getting the entire team in Indy, 
and our other changes. Yeah, I've given this one a lot of thought uh, for a, a while now. And here's the core issue. It might not seem like it today, but here is the core issue. This team has been the slowest to make changes of any that I can think of in the series for quite some time. Uh, it, it takes years and years and years of the same thing happening over and over again before the boiling point is reached. And where that is an issue and where that leads it to where it is right now is when these things start happening at a name the other team that is running far better than Foyt, the reaction time is not years. Sometimes it's barely even months. The minute some teams pick up on a trend, it could be many things. A mechanic who maybe something's going wrong in their personal life and they're missing a nut here, missing a bolt there, wheel wasn't tightened. They're seeing a trend They don't wait a year to find out if he or she can snap out of it. They jump right in and say, hey, what do you need? Can we help you? What is the thing we can do that can either help get you right back on track now? Do you need some time away? What is it? But we are always looking for trends that are both positive and negative, and we are looking to amplify one further in the right direction and amplify the other to get it out of the negative direction and to the Foyt team's credit, they hired Scott Harner this year, which I've mentioned a few times, probably the most impactful thing they have done in, I don't know how long, because Scott is someone that a lot of people want to work for. Again, uh, I know that he just became available having left uh, Chip Ganassi racing after Lord knows how many years, but, This is something where a Harner-esque person has been needed for a long time. Not just someone who's very good at their job in being a manager, but someone that can actually attract people to come to work for them. The type of people that make other teams win or be the best in their discipline. Damper engineer, chief mechanic, gearbox person, simulation, performance engineer, whatever it might be, truck driver, um, they have not had that person that everyone in the paddock goes, oh yeah, that guy's golden. Uh, I trust him. I'm going to be there. They made a change. What year and a half ago when Tony Kanon came on board, his good friend, longtime race engineer, Eric Cowden came in technical director as well. I believe Eric is extremely good at what he does. I also don't know if he has all of the resources he needs, if he has all of the personnel that he needs. Just paint another picture here, both for uh, you, Steve, and you, Chris, and those who are interested and, like myself, really want to see Tony Kanon, Mateus Lace, Larry Foyt, AJ Foyt, all these folks succeed. If you have a situation where someone like an Eric Cowden who is a race-winning engineer, championship-winning engineer, you know, someone who is extremely good at what he does. If he is stepping into a situation like A.J. Foyt Racing, which has been at the bottom for years, they're at the bottom, it means they're behind. Not just behind on, you know, lap time, but they are behind developmentally. They're so far behind other teams 
on all the things, again, behind the scenes, performance related development items that make one car faster than the other. I realized, I realized that the AJ Foyt racing team might not be the wealthiest in the paddock. I don't honestly know how much ABC supply is spending, but I, you know, we thank them for their continued support of the team, but no matter how talented an Eric Cowden might be, the only way you're going to accelerate yourself out of being way the heck behind and move move forward on the grid, jump up a level, up another level, up another level. You've caught and passed, pick the team. Uh, Dale Coin Racing, uh, anyways, teams that are good but not always up front. Name some of these teams. A Meyer Shank could be one of them. Uh, look at some of the other you know, entrance where you go, okay, can we leapfrog them? Uh, a Harding Steinbrenner team, uh, an Ed Carpenter racing, you know, we can work down the list, but you know, some of these teams you go, they're not a part of the big three. They're very good, but they're not part of the big three. How can we get ahead of them? The only way you do that is by over provisioning. You know, it's like starting, I know I use houses and building uh, examples probably too often, but it is very much the same type of dynamic. Hey, if we are getting a very late start on building our house and we have a need to catch up, absolutely get way super caught up on a timeline that we're falling behind on, you're not going to do that with the normal amount of crew. The normal amount of folks that you would bring to build a house, you're not going to catch up on your timeline unless either they work 24 hours a day or, more importantly, you bring in two of everybody or three of everybody in each role. You've got twice, three times the amount of electricians needed and flooring and this is and that's it's the only way you are going to get caught up. Very much the same situation here with a Foyt Racing and an Eric Cowden, for example. Whatever skills Eric has, unless he is just overflowing with engineering support and a lot of people to rip through everything that the team has done, pick apart the things that are just silly and no, I don't care how you've done that before. We're no longer doing it this way. Unless you are just overwhelming Eric with support, contract support, uh, some really high level folks in all the areas that make a race car fast, then it's really hard to expect a team like AJ Foyt racing to get ahead of their rivals. And so at least from what I have seen, and I always reserve the fact that I could be wrong and I might be missing some things. I have not seen an abundance of engineers truly treating this like a science project where you go, man, there's a lot of PhDs on the timing stand or back in the garage or in the shop or up in the engineering office. It's just all hands on deck. What do we have to do to dig ourselves out of this? You know, that that's, you got to build your way out. And if you're trying to do it with the same amount of staff as everyone else, maybe even less, you're just always going to be stuck at the bottom. So if I'm looking at ways of doing things to help dig out of this, uh, yeah, I mean, you, could you find someone that might change a wheel uh, two-tenths of a second faster? Sure, I'm sure you could. Is there someone who could knock a few tenths off of refueling time by plugging in a little fast? Again, there's some really little minute things, I'm sure. You know, there's always someone better you can hire in every position. 
but really where they are struggling is on the stopwatch and the people that give you happier results on the stopwatch they aren't cheap they aren't necessarily in the paddock right now there's another thought that i've had here guys which is you know there were some very talented folks who came in for the indy 500 just for the month of may i mean in the last couple of races we've had 22 cars in the field there are obviously 36 that showed up for the 500 33 that made the race some of the folks that were used uh, are you know existing employees of a team that added a additional car or two additional cars but in some cases there are folks who were hired strictly just freelancers that came in for the month of may and so there are some very good folks both race engineer assistant engineer performance engineers etc engineers that if you really do want to try and over provision look at ways to do things better and dig yourself out uh that is the main thing that comes to mind in hearing AJ and TK say, we're going to do whatever we need to get out of this. Uh, Neil Joseph, <laughs> I love your question and thank you. Marshall, an idea why the LED panels just show the car numbers at Texas. Are there issues again? I think I'm going to start a IndyCarLEDIssues.com site where folks can not only send in their questions, but hopefully commiserate. Um, because, and I'm not saying this in any negative way towards you, Neil, there's just so many of these questions that come in on a weekly basis that it just keeps making me think that we're never going to find a place where the damn panels, no matter who makes them, no matter anything, it just seems like it's a constant, constant thing. So I don't know, Neil, I noticed the same thing. It seemed a little bit weird. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, maybe this is just you hear it in my voice i'm giving up, giving up a little bit uh, let's go to john hankins who i believe is stitch turner as well says i was at texas this weekend miss seeing you there um had a great time however i know the drivers hate it it's a touchy subject with some fans but i miss a high downforce three and four wide out of turn four do you think they'll ever go back to that at least on the only high bank super speedway on the schedule I do not, John. Uh, I just don't see ever getting back to that point where the cars are so glued they can't get away from one another. So a little bit more, as I mentioned just a moment ago, but I don't see them moving beyond that. John also mentions, uh, Marshall, for those who want to call Max Chilton a chicken for not running the ovals, do they ever consider Ed Carpenter a chicken for not wanting to run the claustrophobic concrete valleys with little to no runoff space of Long Beach or Detroit? Those people need to get over themselves Unless they have driven an IndyCar at 230 miles an hour, they've got no business making that judgment on Max or anyone else in the field. Yeah, you and I are in complete agreement here, John. It's also kind of the thing, right? You know, uh, the the what the Warriors, DeMarcus Cousins had a miserable game two games ago, and so everybody who's never played the NBA it has an opinion on about you know, the guy's shot, he doesn't have the heart, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, name whatever it is. I am sure I've done this as well, although I've tried not to as I've gotten older. But, you know, um, saying things about someone's character, heart, skills, capability, bravery, balls, etc. cetera, um, you know, it's kind of the ultimate amateur move. You know, the amateur Monday morning quarterback move. And it's just part of the culture. But yeah, uh, I guess it'd be one thing for me if Max did his first oval 
and was so scared he said i'm never doing it again it's another thing when the guy's done i don't know a dozen or more at least in his career and done very well at them it's actually been the best oddly enough the guy who spent his whole life only road racing having never seen an oval till 2015 uh, at least coming over in the states in open wheel ovals have been the absolute best results for him the place where he's really been able to shine and that's the thing that he said you know despite all that the the risk reward ratio is getting to be too much for me and so i respect that uh, knowing that he is still somewhat newly married and maybe can see the bigger picture has a reason to see the bigger picture um not i mean there are others who have been married for far longer have kids and everybody has their own value system what is the thing that they'll push up against but not exceed sometimes those markers move they come a lot closer and it just just sounds like that has what that is what has happened with max something that i don't know if he was ever quote fine doing it but something he was willing to push aside and do um that line's become a lot closer to where he's not willing to step over it at least for right now let's go to kevin howard marshall now the indycar has a successful one and a half mile package should they consider adding more to the calendar uh, well going back to the question not too long ago uh, on the topic of racing at Montreal uh, from Lori Carter, I would love actually to see IndyCar go to more mile and a half ovals. Would truly love it. Uh, someone who worked in the first, actually, I didn't do the first season of the IRL uh, in '96, but who did the first, I shouldn't say, God, I keep saying first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth seasons of the IRL. Yeah, we were at a point where it seemed like most of the places we went were mile and a half ovals and they tended to produce some amazing racing different era you know this is 20 plus years ago totally different formula different engines different everything although there were a lot of dollars in the field um i'd love to see it if those tracks are in agreement some of those tracks are in agreement have the money to put up and i would say more importantly than money have a belief that there is a fan base that will come and turn out Robin Miller just put together a really interesting opinion piece on it's time for IndyCar and NASCAR to come together and do a joint weekend at Texas, all driven by nothing other than crowd because the crowds individually are paltry. Maybe bringing them together for a super event would actually fix that. There's no fans in the grandstands like we saw at phoenix then no there'd be no reason to go to a whatever kentucky or here or there uh if there are no fans waiting uh, that'd only be a black eye for indycar even if they got a good sanction fee out of it uh, let's see we're going to ramp down to the final couple of questions and then get to the couple of opinion items that i mentioned uh, let's see let's go to Pete Hernandez, Marshall, during the weekend's Texas race, I spotted a silver device attached to the chin bar of Ron Hunter A's awry helmet with a tube coming out of it. Uh, I think it was also present at the Detroit rounds. Did I notice it as well? If so, any idea what it is? I did spot it at Texas, not at Detroit. My guess, and it's purely a guess, is that it was some form of drink bottle connection. Um, I did see with drivers with some other helmets, they had a little more, I don't know, crude uh ways of getting uh, the drink tube in just kind of jabbing it through one of the uh the little mesh spots meant to flow air in so that's my guess 
and I uh, haven't had a chance to reach out to Mr. Hunter Ray, uh, but I will do that here, hopefully, remember to and find out or confirm that's what it was. Uh, let's see, what else can we go to here? Kevin Frederico says, Marshall, if IndyCar is going to most likely stay with Delara for the foreseeable future, can we hope that Red Bull and Adrian Newey will be the ones to do design and Delara would be the ones commissioned to only build it? Uh, and he says, since Red Bull's already building the aero screen, might as well do the next generation car. Well, we can hope, and I'm just using your words. We can hope that Red Bull and Adrian Newey would do the next Indy car. I would doubt it very highly. And honestly, how's this? I would love to see them engaged. The uh, Red Bull Advanced Technology, I believe, is RBAT. That's the company that is doing the aeroscreen design. Not manufacturing, though, uh, at least according to the IndyCar series. But what I would love to see, Kevin, if we're going to use your idea here, is for Delara and Red Bull to collaborate. And the reason being is, although Red Bull designs them some Fantastic cars, led by the amazing Adrian Newey, one of my longtime heroes. They have no experience whatsoever in modern IndyCar safety and performance needs. Adrian, obviously, with amazing engineering and design background in the 80s with the March chassis, definitely has IndyCar experience. But we're talking an era where these cars were made out of honeycomb aluminum. Uh, and in some cases there was more than just March in the field, but I would have a carbon fiber, uh, upper, the upper half, the upper shell of the car, the tub itself was carbon, but the bottom was aluminum. Uh, also had the driver's wheels ahead of the front axles, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So not as if Adrian is incapable of designing an amazing indie car, but although they take heat and I sometimes throw a little heat their way, our friends at Delara, and they are genuinely friends, have the kind of knowledge and experience related specifically to the five unique types of tracks that IndyCar visits. The short oval, uh, call them intermediate speedway, the one and a half mile circuit at Texas, the super speedways, the proper big ones, two mile plus road courses and street courses. There is nobody better or that knows more in the world about these needs in 2019, 21, 23, any, whatever today. And in the years to come, than Delara, they know all the loads, all the needs, all the crash information, all the everything. And so I do like the idea knowing that the DW 12 was definitely a donkey upon its introduction. Um, yeah, Having lived through that, along with many others, Kev, I do recall what a unhappy, uh, what an unhappy uh, new vehicle that was received by so many folks in the paddock, uh, drivers as well. Uh, it's come a long way. There's been a, I can't think of a, a single spec vehicle, one model that has gone through so many iterations throughout its lifespan to get it to a place where everyone's pretty darn happy with what it is, but. It was so far from that in the beginning in 2012 that, yeah, there is still for me that feeling of, huh, there is no one better than Delara knowledge wise, experience wise, safety wise, all these things. But I wouldn't mind if Red Bull and Adrian were involved somehow, maybe even just to make it a little 
prettier from the outset, knowing how it's taken so long to get it to that place with the universal arrow kit. But yeah, this is a great idea, Kev. I wouldn't hand it off to them all together, but I would certainly love to see the two work together. Another Red Bull-related question from our pal Buddy Campbell. He says, Red Bull is in pretty much every major series in the world. Do they just not see any value in IndyCar? They did in Champ Car. And did Eddie Cheever burn the bridge so bad that they won't come back to Indy? Uh, well, Eddie Cheever and burning bridges. I'm going to leave that one alone. Buddy, I mean, they were in NASCAR as well with a team of their own run by a certain Jay Fry, IndyCar president. You know, a couple things come to mind. Not saying that they are the correct answers to your question, but they do come to mind. Uh, they have d- proverbially been there, done that in IndyCar slash Champ Car, uh, or been there in both, been in NASCAR, used motor racing in the U.S. and other forms of racing too. Uh, use that, made an impression, uh, definitely helped grow their brand, grow awareness for it. We have other energy drink brands here that are certainly, I would say, higher higher profile than they were when Red Bull was kind of the only name, that being a monster and maybe some others. My guess, looking at how Red Bull is you know, involved in other sports, soccer and whatnot, looks like they have appraised the U.S., done motor racing in the u.s and i'm guessing feel that they've gotten all out of it that they were going to and or the reasons to stay that they are just limited you know we've gotten enough out of this impact into this motor racing market that we could stay around but we're not really going to move the ball forward very much so let's try some other sports but if all that's wrong we'll just blame eddie chiefer uh let's see yesenia sanchez says what's an appropriate horsepower level for the ovals when the new engines debut? That's an awesome question, Yesenia, and I don't have an answer for that because I don't know what the aero package will be uh, when we have the new cars that are supposed to follow the year after the new engines. Uh, so I don't know what we're going to be looking at downforce-wise uh, wise on the ovals, etc. But I will come back to something that you might have heard me discuss last week, and I will keep mentioning because I do believe it. And this is all inspired by the amazing IMSA former president, technical director, you name it, who's still there, Mark Raffoff, who firmly believes that race cars need to be faster than the tracks they compete on. And this would definitely apply to the ovals. And if that sounds dangerous, it's not meant to be. It's actually the opposite. It's meant to be something where drivers can no longer go flat or be flat for most of the lap and actually with the motors being powerful enough. And also if you take enough weight off and remove enough downforce, you're certainly going to have missiles uh, in a straight line. But Mark's whole belief and concept, which certainly worked when he was writing the IMSA GTP rules and so many other rules, it was about creating a formula uh, often driven by that big old motor that is going to make the cars faster than the tracks they compete on. And if you can do that, which we can here, knowing we can turn turbo boost up or down, you do create a dynamic where you can absolutely make drivers need to lift, if not break, entering turn one at Texas and wherever else, Indianapolis, because the thing is going so darn fast, you must slow down. Uh, And then maybe possibly drift a little bit through the corner. I mean, crazy. I'd be honestly... If I'm talking Indy, I would love to see 250 miles an hour down the straights and, I don't know, 170 in the corners 
where yeah it's not just a continuous 250 miles an hour all the way around while that number would be amazing to see what we haven't seen is drivers having to use a little bit of that uh, old school USAC, you know, dirt heritage. And again, I'm not really truly talking about Tokyo drifting it through the corners, but you know, maybe the concept not being too far removed where you're not relying on arrow to glue the thing to the ground. Uh, and you have come in with so much speed there's, it would be impossible to carry it through the corners. So you either have to lift early, really early, or you have to indeed break and then get back on the throttle and manage this car, which isn't flooded with downforce. So uh, I don't know what that number is, Yesenia, but it would certainly be 100 plus, 150 more than we have right now. And knowing that's where IndyCar president wants to take, IndyCar president Jay Fry wants to take this in the very near future, you know, there's the potential for it. So I hope that's what they're thinking. I hope what we don't have is, all right, we've got a 1,000 horsepower. That's amazing. And here's all the downforce you need to freely lap Indianapolis and wherever flat out in the corners with that crazy amount of horsepower. So I'm hoping the big power jump is also met with an overall mindset change to truly make the corners less of an aerodynamic exercise and more of a driver talent exercise because you want to talk about bump day being dramatic and giving folks ulcers. Um, It's not just a bravery of how low can you take the downforce to get a little bit of speed out, but it's still, you know, vaguely drivable. This would be something where true unfiltered driver talent of having to, with their foot and the steering wheel and maybe slight dabs of the brake, really have a car teetering on the edge of adhesion without aero doing the work by and large for them in the corners. I think that would be a glorious return to something that really made heroes out of the drivers at Indianapolis in the 50s and 60s uh, and even the 70s, uh, earlier parts of the 70s. I think that would be amazing. Let's see, uh, Jordan Darwin, MP, do you think the uh, Texas race should increase maybe to 400 miles or 700 kilometers to uh, avoid it starting out as a fuel conservation race? I think yellow-wise, Jordan, the trend has been, there's been lots of yellows. So while it's not abnormal for folks to think yellow-saving, fuel-saving, yellow will come at some point, maybe, but we're not sure. So let's say from the outset, I think this race was a little bit different than expected with uh, a lot of green running, and it took a while to go yellow when we had Zach Veach's uh, little incident and spin first, then Hinch following that, then obviously Dixie and Colton coming together. But, yeah, I I think we're okay with what we have. Um, I don't mind it being a little bit of a crapshoot. That's the thing. It's fun for me, at least, knowing that, yeah, these are the drivers that qualified in the top ten, we expect them to kind of run in the top 10. But what about some of the really good drivers who had a bad qualifying? They're starting, whatever, 16th. They realize they're probably not going to shoot to the front. So they, from the beginning, say, okay, I'm going to save fuel. And what can we do to use strategy to our best effect to get to where we need uh, towards the end? And then we often have a little bit of a surprise. So I'm okay with what we have. Not sure we need to make any changes there, but that is just me. All right, let's go to our friend, 
Tom Schreier. Thank you, Tom, for sending a really, really nice note uh, of late, knowing that you have been through this cancer fight and unfortunately faced the worst outcome with your wife. So thank you, Tom, for being so just kind and selfless. You might hear, uh, if you hear a little bit in the background, what sounds like the air conditioner. That's because it is. It's almost 100 degrees here in the Bay Area today, and yet 10.02, it's 80 degrees in the office here. So I had to kick it back on to make sure my wife and I weren't uh, just boiling. Uh, Tom says, the one thing that seems F1 to have gotten right is reducing the info going to the driver. Should IndyCar disallow the timing stands from telling the drivers when the driver behind them is on push to pass? I think so. It'd be interesting. Interesting for sure, Tom. Um, there's a part of me that always struggles with the old school, new school dynamic. And this is certainly one of them. Really, we, as everybody knows, by checking our mobile phones 923 times a day, I mean, we're always seeking, always looking for information, whether it is truly filling our brains with knowledge or just something to amuse ourselves or to distract ourselves. You know, part of me thinks that we live in a time where just nonstop blasts of information to our eyeballs or ears. It's just become 100% normal. And, you know, if we're talking what is going to a driver, whether it's push to pass information or I overheard this on the scanner from the other team, but this driver is having this problem or complaining about such and such, or, hey, I think the guy in front of you might be going to a three-stop strategy instead of a two, so you might try and pressure him into using more fuel or whatever it might be. I don't know. Part of me thinks that strategy, informing oneself, oneself about what the other team, quote team is doing and teams are doing i don't know um i look at what happens in football when it is just constant attempts to figure out what the other team is doing to study ahead of time try and gain all information i mean everyone's looking at uh images shot uh, video captures shot play after play after play about what the other team did what our team did uh the thing that surprised us that the other team did with this player here there it's happening in the nba all the time it happens again in baseball in every sport that i can every popular sport i can think of so the fact that there's a similar thing going on in racing you know i i'm not against it I also wonder if you made those efforts illegal in other sports where you could not look at any imagery of what the other team had just done on the previous play or plays, how they blew up your scheme and sacked your quarterback, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Maybe that would make the racing better. I do have a story, uh, kind of a, a oh, stupid thoughts from MP thing that I started compiling, I don't know, maybe six or eight months ago. It's kind of fantasy weekends pick a different theme each weekend and this could be used by an entire racing series so that in indycar's case all 17 races would have a different theme or any championship out there imsa nascar whatever could pick from the variety of dumb ideas that have come up with for thematic weekends different than just the norm and i do believe one of them is a no information weekend tom 
just truly no data acquisition, no anything. Um, one radio where basically other than, hey, since you have no data and don't know when you're about to run out of fuel, but we can see it on this side, we're going to tell you you need to pit in two laps. And I think a spotter, again, if we're talking ovals, that's if this were used on an oval. I think spotters, we can all universally agree, bring a really high level of safety, so that's good. But other than that, one of the notes that I had for a special weekend was kind of a test balloon for what you're mentioning. Let's strip all information away. Go back to whatever era where there was just maybe the the first radio communication between drivers and pits. But other than calling out fuel, since we do not really have um, a mechanical fuel gauge in the car, and if we're going to turn off all data, more or less, in the cockpit, maybe other than RPMs, something so drivers can shift. Um, gear number? I don't know about that one, Tom. I think, although these transmissions shift very, very quickly, uh, I think driver having to track which gear they're in might not be a bad bad thing at all either. But anyways... Not sure exactly how much info would be stripped away, but it would be a lot. So who knows? Maybe if the stupid idea that I have ever gets into print, and I actually do get this thing done, uh, I'm staring at the pile of post-it notes I have assembled over the year so far of all the different ideas that I've had. Um, maybe that could be something for any car to try. And just, you know, if it works, then, I don't know, give me a dollar. Uh, that's, that's what it'll cost. And if it doesn't work... Um, it wasn't me that came up with it. Let's go to Simon Roffey. He says, have you heard anything further about a race in Australia? Also, was there any further discussion about guaranteed entries for the Indy 500? Finally, I'd like to wish my wife, Shabrell, all the best for a speedy recovery. Simon, I need to check in. I'm long overdue to check in with Jay Fry and Mark Miles on Australia and many other things. Haven't heard anything. Um through the proverbial grapevines about that being close to happening. But I hope that there is something positive. At least it's not totally dead. As for the discussion about guaranteed entries for the 500, I mean, there's been plenty of discussions, Simon, but this is truly just a made up thing. Meaning, Hey, uh, folks are very concerned about the qualifying process for the Indy 500 last year, this year as well. Uh, what do folks think about it if we went back to guaranteed? It was just a premise brought up. And some very high-profile team owners who are always going to look out for their best interests, which is kind of a human thing. It's not a criticism. Uh, said, yeah, hey, we spend a lot of money, of course. Uh, if you sign up for a full season, yeah, we think we should have guaranteed entries. So it was just an idea uh, that was being floated. And then seemingly every IndyCar team owner, uh, past and present was asked the same question. So in terms of it being an active topic that I know of between team owners coming to IndyCar saying we've united and want this thing, I've never heard that. So I don't think it's a thing, Simon, and I don't think it's going anywhere. So, uh, let's see. Let's get down to our last two items. The ones that I said that are a little bit opinion-y and, uh, well, one's opinion-y and the last one's a little bit information-y. Both John Hollinger, Hollinger, apologize if I've gotten that wrong, John, and Jim Kaiser have said, uh, MP for you, Dixon, Herta, or racing incident? And Jim says, for Marshall, who is at fault, Dixon or Herta? Or was it just a racing incident? He then says, hashtag me personally. 
I think Herta stuck it in there and lost it, causing the wreck. So this is a bit of a fun one, guys. As I usually do, even if I'm not at an event like Texas, uh, either friends in the paddock call me. Uh, those tend to be the ones either on pit lane or in the cars. I call them and just do my best as I have free time to kind of huddle up, share some thoughts, gain some intel. And this is one where looking at how I'll start with the aftermath. Aftermath, that sounds like something major happened. The after effects of this. Uh, there was Colton Herta who said that Dixon apologized to him and in the interview, I believe, with our man Robin Miller, that Dixon apologized to him and Colton, I think, being fairly young, took that as an absolute. Dixon uh, accepted the blame. He was at fault. Done deal. As I understand it, the phrasing of it was more of a Hey, if, if I was wrong, I apologize, you know, instead of, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Again, that's what I've heard. It was, there was some nuance to it, not a straight up, oh my goodness, I am so, so sorry. Uh, I didn't, I uh, just completely 100% on me. As I understand it, again, it was more of a, hey, if it was me, I'm sorry. And then know that afterwards that that apology might have been made before he had seen the replay. So this isn't a case of who was right and who was wrong. This is just understanding that, at least in terms of what was initially presented, uh, it was received, it sounds like, by Colton, that Scott just straight up put his hands up, my bad, it's on me. In reality, Scott had not seen the replay and had kind of phrased it in a, if it was me, hey, my bad kind of thing. Then after seeing the replay, pretty strong belief uh, I've heard behind the scenes that no, that wasn't on me. And so, which would then kind of unwind uh, the belief that a, a, quote, full apology was made. So looking at the incident itself, what I saw in watching not only the replays, but also slow motion a bit, some of this is meaningless, some of it isn't. It looked to me like Colton after regaining i believe he regained some semblance of control over the car he said he didn't so again i'm not claiming to know more than him i'm just saying in watching the video him stuffing it down on the inside in turn three after dixon made a really aggressive move to block him and prevent that that was i've we've all seen that before if you've watched texas in recent years that going into turn three uh, drivers really try and fight to close that inside lane to prevent the person who has more momentum from going down the inside. Doesn't mean that move is correct, the blocking and moving over. Not at all. Uh, I would say that, again, in slow motion, <laughs> keeping in mind they're doing 210, however many miles an hour, in slow motion, uh, even at the time and at full speed, it was harsh. That was a hard, hard move to try and discourage Herta from going down the inside. I don't put any, there's no blame to throw at Colton. Um, Scott made a really hard move. Where, again, watching it, especially some of the replays and then looking at it in slow motion, it looked like externally that he was obviously moved down below the white line. There was a moment of instability it looked like he regained stability 
and then it looked like he tracked up a little bit. Then it was kind of the right front of Colton's car hitting the left rear of Dixon's car. Colton says there was no moment of stability, and if that's the case, then what I saw and interpreted as a semblance, you know, a a regaining of control was just an in-between phase of initial loss and then full loss. So not questioning him. I wasn't in the car, and I've never known that kid to be a liar. Uh, He's been straight honest uh, in all the interactions I've had with him. So if you trace it back, you could say, without a doubt, Dixon was very hard entering the corner, overly hard, I would say. And Colton decided to not be dissuaded by that and kept pushing. I'd say they also, with the timing of how everything worked out, would have been a little bit hard for him to just truly back all the way out, uninsert himself completely, and the two go on uh, unaffected. I don't know if that's 100% correct, but just as I saw it, this was creating a very hard scenario for Colton to deal with. And then we had the outcome of the two of them crashing and then a very apparent misunderstanding that one driver took the blame and then, you know, nuance possibly being lost. And then afterwards that driver saying, yeah, no, 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 that wasn't that. I'm not, I'm not owning that one. Regardless, this is my overriding thought on this specific incident. And then I want to get to the opinion and or sharing a little bit of info here that I'm going to write about as well. If you have watched the Texas race, this, I'm going to throw it down deep inside turn three maneuver. That's the thing that happens before just about every single crash in turn three. So historically, if you've never raced an IndyCar, but you have watched this race, just sitting at home, you don't have to even be at the track, just sitting at home, if you've watched the last three, four, however many Texas 600-kilometer IndyCar races. So often, the cars coming together and crashing in turn three is because of this exact type of move being attempted. I'm going to dive down the inside going into turn three. I don't know if this is something that Colton has watched numerous events and thought that he could be the guy to pull it off. I don't know if he's never you know, watched the past events and really tried to analyze and see if there's a trend in who crashes where. I can't speak to any of that. I just know that when I saw Dixon try and block and Colton continue moving, although again, I know it it didn't look like he could very easily extricate himself. My first thought was, this is the one guaranteed thing to bring out a yellow at this track because the I'm going to be really aggressive trying to go inside as we get pretty darn close to turn three. It just seemingly never works out in anyone's favor. Not saying it's never happened successfully. Of course, that pass has worked and cars have gotten away clean. Just saying that if we're talking yellows involving two cars coming together at Texas, this is kind of the go-to move. And so although you can't really strip who did what and where Dixon being at fault for being too aggressive and so on. 
this is just the formula where I'm saying if there's hell, whether it's lap one of 248 or even the final lap, that's been proven to not be the move just based on the high rate of contact and crashes. So I'm not holding this against Colton like, boy, he's a dummy and he just knew a crash was going to happen. Not at all. This is just one of those things that, as I saw it taking place, said, oh, man, not here, not now. This never works out. Man, Colton has been the bravest guy all day long, and here's more of this bravery. I don't know if I had it as it was about to happen and happening, but there was also a little bit of a thought of, huh, I wonder if Dixon was, was being so hard on him because he was trying to prevent such an accident from happening um if we go back to the day at indy episode we did with santino ferrucci right after the monday practice the the final uh long form practice session uh, of race week and him talking about how elio castroneves three-time indy 500 winner was actually blocking him a little bit, not letting him get by in certain places because as Santino received it, I was trying to do the wrong things to get by him. And what he then did following him the next couple of laps was show me basically set things up the right way, trying to show me not just where to pass him, but how to pass him. So we both get out of here cleanly. That flashed through my head as well. I don't know if it's accurate or not. But part of me was thinking that as well. Is Dixon just being really hard and dickish, blocking into turn three for no reason? Or was there a, nah, kid, come on, this never works out. Don't try this. Boom. I don't know if that had anything to do with anything, but it did flash through my head. The last thing I'll mention here, and this is what I'm going to include in my mid-season driver thoughts and whatnot. The column that my good pal and colleague Robin Miller wrote about uh, after the race about Colton being the star of the show, despite being a DNF, it did not finish. No question. That kid is <laughs> fear. Fear has never met Colton Herta. It's amazing. That kid loves the stuff that tends to scare other people. Yeah, I know that I'm turning right to catch oversteer entering turn one on an oval. This is all lefts. But I'm turning right uh, and turn one, turn two, wherever. I mean, uh, we saw him doing it at Indy. We've seen him do it here now, his second IndyCar Oval. Uh, it's amazing. It truly, there's nothing but praise being said here. I also need to be really honest in telling you that he scares the hell out of some of IndyCar's veterans. And this isn't something I'm revealing for the first time. This has been shared um, with the Herta family, just friends to friends saying, hey, um, I've heard from some drivers, very esteemed, if not highly successful folks who wear Indy 500 rings currently compete, who said at the 500, Ooh, boy, I just had to let him go because I was convinced he was either going to wreck the two of us or crash right in front of me by doing some really high risk stuff. And I didn't want to get caught up in it and heard a similar account after the Texas race of, ooh, all right, I, I just had to let him go 
because I got run down below the white line myself and for my own preservation decided it was better to just let him have the spot. So this is not saying anything dire. This is not saying the kid lacks anything other than big speedway experience and knowing how to play nicely with the others. From a true competitor standpoint, you'd say, well, (laughs) it's not his job to play nicely with others. If other drivers are scared, afraid, whatever, uh, don't want to be around him, well, good on him. You know, you think of uh, the NHL playoffs that are going, or, you know, uh, Stanley Cup finals that are going. We talk about enforcers. Oh, man, you better steer clear of that guy. He will clean your clock. And that's an advantage. Got it. I don't know if I apply that same thing at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Texas Motor Speedway, Pocono International Raceway. Um, Yeah, just one of those things where, like Santino coming back, saying, ooh, I'm really thankful for Elio actually kind of, you know, swatting me on the nose, saying, no, kid, that's not how you do it. That's not how we coexist safely and compete hard. Now let me show you how you should be doing this, where you don't hurt me, I don't hurt you, and we can continue racing and maybe continue the battle instead of step out of our battered cars, missing wheels and wings and otherwise. Um, Colton, this is all based on feedback I have received from those sharing the track with him on super speedways and some very, very respected folks. Um, As a rookie, again, this kid's fearless. This kid has everything that tells us he should be a multiple champion, Indy 500 winner, you name it. He's just also someone who has yet to maybe get the the full message you hope he receives, which is there are ways to beat everyone without giving the impression or treating others like you are willing to take risks that everyone else has decided it's not the way for us to stay on track and keep all four wheels on the car. So with another DNF, another crash here, following one at Indy, uh, I believe four crashes out of the last six races, road course, street course, etc., and ovals now, kid has the goods the kid is truly future indycar champion and i'm not talking five ten years from now i'm talking very soon clear though that part of his rookie education is all right man you got the biggest balls of anyone on these big high-speed ovals how can we learn going forward to Pocono, for example, even I would say gateway, you know, it's not a big one, but it's still pretty quick. Um, are there some tweaks and tuning we can do to one's approach to where your willingness to make really aggressive passes and, or deal with cars that are just super, super sideways, etc. Are there things we can do that allow you to still be unique and excellent and have a high percentage chance of succeeding without it bordering on something where some of the best existing winners, those who have won 500s and won big, big oval races in IndyCar, feel like they can trust you? So 
that's the that's the adjustment there and i hope that it's made i'm sure it will be made because this kid is so good and so smart i think he can do these things without losing uh really any of the things that make him so special all right let's get to the last topic here and this is on the subject of a story that i wrote then one that uh, someone from the Associated Press wrote, I don't recall his name, and that's not a sign of disrespect, just I've never met him, uh, isn't someone whose name that stood out to me, so I apologize there, that's my ignorance. And then, yet again, another Robin Miller mentioned, Robin wrote a story here yesterday or the day before, whatever it was, uh, this being on the Harding-Steinbrenner team, and the story that I wrote was, they are back in tough financial situation yet again really do need to identify uh, sponsors that will help get them through the rest of the year and part of that story was crew members coming out of their pocket to buy consumables one in particular and i'm not naming names i know know some names to mention but i'm not out of respect to them um, one who paid to have some high performance items on the car that the team otherwise was not able to acquire. If we're talking where information comes from, obviously I'm not going to name sources, but if we're talking about where information comes from, it's two places inside or outside. And all I can say is with three points of confirmation, there's no question as to the validity or accuracy of what was reported in my mind i know that i saw some comments about well is this just an agenda is this old news being reported on is this some sort of misguided effort to play up the the struggles of the young and next generation drivers well again believe what you want i hope well hope's the wrong word i'm also confident that I've done enough work where for those who actually look at things in a fair and balanced manner will realize that, yeah, I'd really, hopefully I'm not known for just posting nonsense or pulling stuff out of my backside. But again, I realize that we live in an era where journalists are truly questioned at all times about motivation, accuracy, you name it all driven by the hashtag fake news era where anything can be called fake news. So anyways, I get that it happens every day and to reporters who do far more important work than I do and those of us in motor racing. So again, I guess that's all to be expected, but it was funny to hear that one of the team owners told a friend of mine that what was written was again, truly hashtag fake news totally inaccurate not true whatsoever cool again (laughs) it's all good i look forward to having a conversation with that person in the years to come and just on a personal level we'll uh we'll we'll reconcile uh the public statements there about it being fake news versus you know just take a look at my notes yeah this might be stuff where you really would have a hard time refuting its accuracy uh wouldn't give up sources again but the thing that is interesting here specifically about the questions of the uh, sponsors related to Harding-Steinbrenner Racing, and now that we've seen them spread around some other teams as well. So if we talk about abstracts, and that's all I'm going to do here is abstracts, you can take from this as to whether it's 
related to this topic or not. So if a sponsor says, hey, we're signing up for X amount. Cool. Pretty normal. There's usually a list of deliverables in those contracts. I've heard, I've heard of some sponsors in the past. Past could be yesterday. Past could be 20 years ago. Who look at those deliverables and some of the things that are written in there as ways to possibly minimize the amount that is paid in the very end. Uh, Let's say, hey, says a sticker must be 48 inches wide on whatever piece of equipment. I just measured it. It's 47 and three quarters inches. You're a quarter inch off. Foul. Penalty. Breach. Definitely going to be paying you less. You didn't live up to this. There's some, again, I've heard... Heard mention of sponsors. Actually, I've had this happen once before, but uh, with a team that I worked with. But a sponsor who the impression that was received, can't say if it's what was in their heart and intention, but the impression received was, despite signing for X amount, let's say $10, looking for little things. Ah, yeah, yeah, you know, said that uh, in the contract our name would be mentioned first or second and oh you guys just wrote one and we were mentioned third foul penalty not getting paid the full amount start racking those things up and it's a decent laundry list of quote complaints up oh, here are the fouls here are the breaches i know we signed for ten dollars you know add all these things up though can really only give you three really only give you three because that's all you've done And uh, someone said something, one of your crew members did something that we felt was breach of personal conduct or ethics or something. It's going to have to be two. Really sorry. Now, granted, the contract says you must have our our logos on your car and everything else. But, you know, clearly you're in breach. So you got to maintain your end of the bargain. But, you know, based on the contract we have, or maybe just. You know, you being in a hard position where you really need our money, whatever it is, maybe you're not in a position to really push back and get big lawyers involved. Uh, So, sorry, man. All right, we'll do you a favor. We're going to give you two and a half dollars instead of the 10. So we're going to come up 50 cents. I've heard of that happening before. So if that is happening, despite press conferences and announcements and hey here's a new thing confirming that they're the primary and boy and they said they've been the primary and was we said that last month or last year or whenever just sharing that uh this has happened before it is not an unfamiliar thing it's not a freak common thing but it's not something that's totally out of left field so in that scenario if that were to happen you could potentially have a team that while it has what appears to be a primary sponsor for one race five races a full year that sure looks like it's bought real estate that costs a whole bunch that should allow that team to run free and easy for the rest of the year but indeed what they're getting paid a couple bucks instead of the whole 10 I have heard such things happening in the sport. I have indeed had something like this happen 
not to a crazy degree, but the nitpicking, trying to talk down the number. Oh, well, yeah, but, you know, you guys really haven't delivered very much. And, you know, we were expecting, we really thought you guys were going to be running up front and getting more TV time, but you haven't. And so, you know, boy, uh, I've had this happen with a driver before. Uh, who was paying to drive one of my cars, and we had some problems in the race. Uh, it was in a long endurance race. And after the race, not during, but after, wanted to then haggle and bring the price down super low because although they got lots of driving time, um, they did not end up having the uh, the potential to have a podium or winning car. And you go, I get you. We did have problems. Um, those things happen. You know this. We know this. You signed up to drive. There's no guarantees. But to then get the full complement of driving time, and then after they say, yeah, I know I drove a bunch, but, I mean, come on, man. You know, that's too much asked for. I mean, let, let's come up with a different price. Funnily enough, that driver, <laughs> uh, who he and I were maybe not in the friendliest place for many years, actually reached out probably about five years ago, six years ago, and says, hey, you know what? Um I didn't like how I did that. That wasn't cool. I agreed to a price. Uh, although we, we weren't able to win or even remotely have a chance to win, you did live up to your end of the bargain in terms of drive time, and they made good. <laughs> so that was really cool. That was a surprise. That was really, really impressive. It's not uncommon to have a sponsor that from the outside looks like all awesome and sharing the wealth and spreading the wealth. It's also not a surprise that when someone comes out of the blue and is spreading a lot of wealth, you find out one of two things. It's real and everyone's getting fat and happy or B, there might be some questions as to whether it is smoke and mirrors or vaporware. So I, and I believe just about anybody would hope, want pray you name it that all of these things work out positively lots of money is coming into the team questions about fluidity and the ability to finish the year and run for many years in the future completely erased um i can't think of many i mean i realize this one thing for folks to say things whatever and oh it's all fake news get it again all good happens every day I can't think of anyone who would be able to look me in the eye and say that and believe it. So, um, more than meets the eye, everything that I just mentioned certainly wouldn't fit in a column, but we'll just say that, you know, hope that everything works out perfectly. Hope that the team is in awesome rock solid financial position going forward. Hope that, the last time this will have to be mentioned but just please understand that if it is being written about being an issue yeah it's not being written about because we want it to be it's because it's reality and that's the way these things should work uh the negatives you know they are there they need to be acknowledged and if anything the hope would be folks maybe with an interest would read and say, oh, hey, there's a team that has a lot of potential that maybe could use some help. And I have a company and let me reach out and maybe we can help them in some way, shape or form. Uh, I know some folks 
perceived the story that I wrote as a negative. All right, cool. Again, however it's received is however it is received. Wasn't written as such. It was written as a accurate portrayal with a definite hope that someone or some ones would step forth and say, hey, all right, let's see if we can be a solution to this because that's really all I would hope that anybody wants. All right, that's it for this episode. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast on a week in IndyCar brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. Thank you for listening.